0: The VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Monday, June the 19th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, he's produced the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue 709 Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 888 vocm which is 8626. Well, hopefully, if Father's Day was on your radar, hopefully you had a chance to spend some downtime with your children and or your dad or those who are playing the role of dad in the home. Of course, my father's been gone since August of 2012, but lucky enough for me to be able to spend time with my own two lads Yesterday, watched some sports, made their favorite supper for a Sunday being some ribs, and had a great day, hopefully the same for you. So, I would imagine there's lots of people here, would have been cheering for Irish Northern Irishman Rory McIlroy at the US Open, and he had a pretty poor day, couldn't get the ball in the hole, finished one shot back at the eventual champion American windham clark you know windham okay so it was on this date in 2011 that mcelroy actually won the us open at congressional won by eight strokes over Aussie jason day set 11 tournament records at that time lowest 72 hole score at 268 lowest total under par minus 16 that was the record in 2011. i don't know if you're watching the jays but they're breaking my heart up 6 nothing, and then get pummeled lose 11-8 to eight. And on this date in 1846, the first official baseball game was played. The New York Nines defeated the New York Knickerbockers 23-1 in Hoboken, New Jersey, back in 1846. Well, I didn't know that there was a tournament of this stature going to be played in the city over the weekend, but the American Cornhole League brought the Canadian Open Two St. John's played at the Remax Center. Now, many of you will uh, recognize the game of cornhole. So whether you play washers or horseshoes, cornhole has been a really favorite pastime in the backyard and on campsites, what have you. And like most everything, there's a professional circuit for it. And there's a fella from here, uh, Dion Cusa, who is a professional cornhole player. Pretty remarkable stuff. But over 100 competitors, they all flocked to the Remax Center over the weekend and had themselves a great time by the sounds of it. The news reports coming from it really sounded quite uh, fun. And some of the players that came from elsewhere around the country or the United States enjoyed their time, so good on them. But also Amanda Oakley from St. John's, she was a backyard player. Right. Someone told her, or many people told her, hey, why don't you enter the tournament take a, a shot at it? So she won her division. <laughs> Fantastic. First woman from this province to hold a Canadian Open crown in the backyard, but now professional uh, league, uh, the American Cornhole League. It's pretty great stuff, that is. All right, let's check in on the FIBA Under-16 Women's Americas Championship being uh, competed for in Mexico. So Canada and the United States will face off in the championship game today. Canada beat Puerto Rico, and the States beat Argentina. Canada's outscored the Puerto Ricans 38-1 to I think in the second half yesterday. So dominant, say the uh, very least. And of course we keep bringing it up because Sarah Reed is one of the players on that particular Canadian national team. She's from St. John's, played her ball at Gonzaga High School. So we've been in six straight finals apparently at that tournament. Haven't won a gold medal since 2015. Of course the States will be stout, but go get them, Sarah Reed and her teammates with the FIBA Under-16 Women's America Championship Squad. All right. So we have heard, and it, everybody knows, that there was a, what people call a police-involved shooting at Regatta Plaza on Elizabeth Avenue. The Serious Incident Response Team and their leader, Mike King, said they would not be identifying the person who was shot and killed by a member of the RNC until they were able to reach his family and identify or to notify next to kin. So many people in the community who have a friend named Omar Mohammed, they say they haven't seen him in a certain amount of time, and they fear that he is the victim in this case. So no confirmation from the RNC or the serious incident response team, but the story is really remarkable, depending on who you hear tell it. So Mr. Mohammed has indeed had a violent past, has been convicted of serious charges, including pulling a knife on an RNC officer, convicted of a sexual assault uh, back in 2020. So not really sure why he wasn't incarcerated at the time of his death. But then again, just about the angles the story takes. Ultimately, the most important part of this story is to understand exactly the details and the circumstances, circumstances surrounding his death. So he was from the Sudan. He was a child soldier at the age of 13, was recruited into the army, which we all know the conversation regarding child soldiers in this world. And then, yes, talking about his past and representing himself in court and detained against his will at the Waterford. And one really eerie quote comes from it, as recorded by the doctor. He refused to believe that he was mentally unwell. So the doctor says he was suffering from psychosis and delusions. And he went on to say, and this is quoted in a news story, is that he would rather die by cop than to die in the Waterford. So, Again, until we know the details, but if there's family, or f- pardon me, friends in the community who say that Mr. Mohammed's family is living in a refugee camp in Chad, the African nation of Chad, then maybe, I don't know, that's going to be quite tricky to reach a family under those circumstances, but it's just remarkable how the story gets told. One story will focus in the fact he was a child soldier. One will focus in on the fact he has a violent past. One will focus in that he was known to police. Well, then, of course, every other detail and tangent associated with the story, but a man is dead. An RNC officer was injured, brought to hospital, released shortly thereafter. So, again, you can take whatever angle you like, but we really need to know what led to his death. You know, there's always going to be some rumors and rumbles, most of which are not helpful, but it is, is a story that has a, uh, plenty of tangles associated with it. But if you want to take it on, and of course, the RNC and law enforcement in the news for all kinds of reasons... Most of it, not great. Some of it always good. I mean, the public role they play in our safety and what have you is obviously well understood. But there's a lot of things we can talk about inside of law enforcement and criminal justice, and let's do it. Also, you know, there was a program went by the wayside at the end of the last year that was put in place by the government, and they brought on the Newfoundland and Labrador chapter, the Canadian Mental Health Association. This was all in an attempt to assist inmates upon their release to reintegrate back into society whether it be mental health supports, uh, support looking for a job, all the obvious issues that released inmates will face. So the problem is, it went by the wayside. Now the good folks at the John Howard Society, they stepped in to take over the 10 people who were still part of the program through the end of the calendar year, but that still remains a massive big gap. Here's some numbers for your consideration. In 2019, they celebrated 10 years of this program being in place. It looked like it was a big success. At the time, the program had supported 122 members, two-thirds, 67% of whom never re-offended or never been reincarcerated. So I know that people in the community will think, you know, enough is enough for spending money on people inside the prison or upon their release from prison, but if we all uh, share the common need and want for public safety, then if the program was working, if two-thirds because we know there's a real turnstile in and out of penitentiaries right across the country. If two-thirds never re-offended, were never reincarcerated, obviously something is inside that program is working. Helping them get a job, be playing a meaningful, contributing member of society. So, you know, we can talk about mental health as it pertains to new facilities over in the health sciences complex, but this particular program, you know, even for the folks at the Canadian Mental Health Association, who do extraordinary work, They say that this isn't really inside their core mandate. And so there's also issues with fragmented program offerings and the monies associated with it. But again, I don't care, and I don't think it really matters what political ideology you have. If there's things we can do to keep the community safe, whether it be in school, whether it be inside the uh, realm of inmates being released from custody or incarceration, then that program, I think, leaves a glaring gap if you want to take it on. We can do it. And also we're learning more about the cyber attack. Good work done by Rob Antle once again here. So you remember back in the fall of 2021. So at one point, the government decided that they the right path forward was combined shared services regarding IT and the protection of our personal data. So with all of that that's on the line, and this is a report coming from the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity, talk about the fact that the regional health authorities and the Newfoundland and Labrador Center for Health Information were quote-unquote, severely understaffed from a technical resource perspective. The number of people working on this critically important file? Three. Three only. So when you have all the various issues that go with protecting our our important information, this is really quite something. They've talked about it uh, extensively inside of this report and review, and of course the Office of the Privacy Commissioner and Sean Murray, who was on this program, to talk about their findings it really does go on to point out some pretty glaring gaps in the who knew what wins, which is always going to be the critical issue that we talk about. So, so the then minister responsible John Hagee was asked about some of the emails coming from David Diamond at Eastern Health and other reports done and there was a group of Israelis that presented to the government Mis- Minister Haggie said it was more of a business proposal as opposed to identifying any vulnerabilities or some security risks that we face but that doesn't seem necessarily to be the case in reality because the minister then went on to say he simply was briefed by his staff about this as opposed to read the entirety of the report, which very clearly said we were at heightened risk. The government tries to play this one pretty pretty loosely. They'll say that they're really pleased that the Office of the Privacy Commissioner in their report said that since the attack there had been meaningful work done to protect the system But that's very much the horse already out of the barn. There has been at least 200,000 files from Eastern Health alone that's been compromised, about a half million in the province, most of which had their information compromised. It's fine to talk about offer credit monitoring services and what have you. Then it's the accountability piece. We can talk about what happened and who was responsible, where the buck stops, but has there actually been anything that happened here? You know, I don't know if it's fair to blame the three people working on such a monumental task, but when these briefings and these warnings were as repetitive and as frequent as they were and as glaring as they were, it's fine that they've done meaningful work after the horse left the barn, but it's what was not done. And consequently, we've had a ton of our information, some 200 gigabytes taken by a ransomware group known as Hive. So good work by Rob to paint a further, clearer picture about what went down there, but that's that story is the furthest thing from over. All right, and this next one. This has gone from, whether it's an eye roller, to now pretty frustrating. It might not be of major concern to you, but it's just how we've been spoken to and the details we're privy to and all the accountability and transparency nonsense that we're always preached about. Okay, so the bloody Atlantic Loop. <laughs> Back in the news last week, when it was initially announced it was a $5 billion infrastructure project, now it's ballooned to some $6.8 billion, of which the federal government apparently is going to put some $4.5 billion on the table. Now remember, it was first advertised as the Atlantic Loop, and then the government needed to go back and do more due diligence, and then it was referred to in the most recent budget as the Maritime Loop. You know, the question being posed by uh, PC leader, interim leader David Brazel, is are we even at the table? Or is it simply the Feds, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick? Nova Scotia in particular still generate the uh, majority of their power from coal-fired electricity. Look, it feels like we're not involved. You know, when Christopher Freeland or anyone else tells me that the reference to the maritime loop in the federal budget was an innocent mistake, given that half the power required does indeed come from Labrador. But let's just break it down a couple of steps further. You know, the reference to Musgraff Falls, we don't really have any excess power from Muskrat. I mean, just look at the investment the government announced at Beta Spare. Some 500 and, uh, $522 million to add an eighth generating station. So, what power are we even talking about from here? It's fine to look down and crystal ball with 2041 and with Gull Island and all the rest, but can the federal representatives of this province and or the provincial members, whether it be the Premier or Minister Parsons, just say, are we part of this or not? Because Again, it's just this infuriating business about, oh, Maritime Loop, that was a mistake. Oh, it's innocent. Half the power, of course, Newfoundland and Labrador has to be involved. But involved how? Again, with Muskrat. So they had to invest in Beta Spare. We do indeed owe a significant amount of power to our partners in Nova Scotia. On top of that, they have first-rate refusal from any, any additional power that can flow across the Maritime Link. Their regulator, we call it the P-U-B, they call it the U-A-R-B. That's been the final ruling in that province. They'll get first right of refusal at market price power. So, again, just in an effort to help us either further understand what this project means, what the benefits might be to us, and if we're not in, just say we're not in. You know, just say. We're not part of this. But, no, it's the the extended tap dance and tiptoe that continues with this particular project. But, anyway, here's a quote coming from the department. Conversations around energy and energy transmission are ongoing, and Newfoundland and Labrador is engaged in these discussions. The region is well positioned to be energy powerhouse in the years ahead, with new energy resources and export opportunities being developed. you got to feel that that's more about hydrogen than it is about hydroelectricity. And on that front, I don't know if people are interested in speaking about it, or look, the topics are up to you, of course, as you know. We're probably going to hear by the end of this month about which companies are going to proceed with this wind, to hydrogen, to ammonia. They all have different sort of parameters and different scope uh, scope and scale, but you got to think it's going to happen. There is some money available from the federal government. The province has said we are not putting any money on the table, but the feds are absolutely in. An upwards of 30% tax credit inside the clean tech manufacturing, and they sp- very specifically mention hydrogen. So I don't know if folks want to get into the the world of the tax subsidy and the way North America and internationally these initiatives inside the so-called green envelope are actually working. For some economists the tax subsidies are a race to the bottom. For others in this country talking about the need to stem the flow of cash and investment from this country into the United States given the hundreds of billions of dollars available under the Inflation Reduction Act. So I don't know if you think it's a good idea or a bad idea But if we want to be part of that equation, how do we possibly compete with the might of the United States, even on the the tax subsidy front? Notably, Volkswagen. You know, it does come across as picking winners and losers. How did Volkswagen become the company that was going to be able to avail of an enormous amount of tax subsidy? They'll pay some $7 billion to build this plant the size of some 365 football fields for electric vehicle battery or electric battery production. But then the possibility based on production, to avail of about $13 billion in tax subsidies for the creation of 3,000 jobs. I wonder, you know, there's going to be people that will just take a position based on their own political wants. It's either good because you're creating jobs and can be part of this supply chain, which we probably do need to be, especially because we have the minerals. It would be a shame to be just uh, producing the mineral, extracting the mineral, send it elsewhere, buy it back. So this is what's going to be happening. There's companies that are already... Fleeing to the United States based on the whopping amount of money that's available in that country. I know that's a big one, but I think it's something that we can and should be talking about. All right, very quickly. So the Board of Trade is hosting an event today about air access. Again, it's an eye roller or a shoulder shrugger in some corners. But as Michael Boyle points out, we've actually had a direct flight to Ireland since the 18th of June in 1919, Alcock and Brown. And here we are now talking about WestJet. They're gobbling up or they're blending in Sunwing and Swoop. They've vastly reduced their flights out of St. John's. They shut down operations in Deer Lake. You know, I guess some people don't think that this is a big deal. But when you bring in more and more out of province, out of country cash, it is a real unrivaled kick in the pants, positively speaking, for the economy. But the board has taken it on, and there you go, very quickly. How are we doing on the telephone, Dave? Okay, so I happened to run into a friend of mine in the grocery store last week. His name is Bruce Templeton. He's an investment advisor, former chair of the Board of Trade, now that we just mentioned the Board of Trade. And in many corners, people might know him as the man in the red suit. He's Santa Claus, one of Santa's helpers. Just came back from Tennessee from a convention with some 650 Santas from around the world. Here's why I bring it up. Beyond being an investment advisor and a businessman, Bruce is a philanthropist. He is a tremendous fellow. People might kind of giggle at the fact that he takes the Santa role so seriously. He doesn't, nor do I. Because what he has done, what he has meant to whether it be uh, patients at the Janeway or the Flight to the North Pole with the folks from Hot FM and many other visits that he's done and I've worked with Bruce on several occasions. Here's where the altruism and the philanthropy comes to play. So the book he wrote, it's a memoir, The Man in the Red Suit. He invested it in himself And between those efforts and proceeds coming from the sale of that book, and other factors, he was going to focus in on providing doses of polio vaccine to children in underdeveloped nations. And at this point, his efforts have resulted in 680,000 doses of the polio vaccine being distributed. So not just what the man does in December, but what he's been doing for a lifetime is truly remarkable. It's always a great pleasure to run into Bruce, but can you imagine, through that man's efforts, and I guess his close circle of business associate, associates, friends' family, 680,000 doses of the polio vaccine. Bravo! Bruce. Bravo. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM open line, follow us there. Our email address is openonfeossim.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. You know the deal that requires your input. don't go away.: Welcome back to the program. let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Kathleen. you're on the air.
2: Uh, yes, good morning, Patty. My um, first-time caller, a little nervous here about uh, keeping it straight.
1: Would <laughs> you take your time? Go right ahead.
2: Okay. Uh, it's, this is, this is kind of complex because it involves more than uh, one issue, but primarily I was prompted to call because of hearing a lady call in on Friday about the treatment she received from the RNC, and that's what kind of prompted me. However, it's, like I said, a little more complex than that. Um, it's, it's about my daughter. I have an adult daughter who is autistic and epileptic and uh, she resides in her own apartment here in St. John's and has for a number of years now. Um, so on February 8th of this year, my daughter uh, had a grand mal seizure and uh, she doesn't normally have grand mal seizures. Her seizures are complex partial or uh, simple partial usually. Uh, But when she's under tremendous stress, she can't have grand mal seizures. So anyway, she did have this seizure. And just prior to that, around the 27th of January, I think it was, uh, she had met with her neurologist, and I was there, and we discussed the fact that she was now experiencing, more frequently, grand mal seizures. So he expressed concern about that and said it was very concerning. And um, so anyway, then on February 8th, when she had this seizure, of course, when she came out of it, she was alone in her apartment, she called the ambulance to take her to the hospital. She was, you know, obviously probably reflected on the idea that this is concerning. So when the EMTs arrived, she told them that she had had a grand mal seizure. And uh, so anyway, they took her to the hospital, and she was triaged there. But uh, she also has a severe phobia of medical invasive procedures. So, of course, the EMTs, for some reason, had... Put in their report, nothing about the seizure. What they had written was that she was intoxicated. Now, after coming out of a grand mal seizure, you know her speech is a bit slurred, and she can be unbalanced in trying to walk. And you know she looks like she's drugged, but she's certainly not. Um, so anyway, the triage seemed to have processed her based on the EMT report because there was no uh, indication in the triage report that uh, she had uh, epilepsy at all. Now, and her phobia certainly isn't noted because I came to find out, certainly subsequent to all of this happening, I came to find out through the hospital that uh, her phobia, which the neurologist certainly has made note of and uh, you know submitted to her file to be noted, uh, is not showing up when they bring up her screen or something. It shows up on the second page, not the first page. So, of course, in an emergency situation, they wouldn't see it right away. But they're looking to change their technology to fix that, is my understanding. So anyway, that was fine. Nurses, of course, trying to treat her, approached her trying to take blood. Now, that's an invasive procedure. So she went into panic, and she cried, and she ran away, and she said she's going to die. She'd rather die and all of this. So she ran out to the porch of the hospital. And... um, subsequent to her running away like that and screaming that she wanted to die and she would die rather than have a needle the hospital rather than deal with that they called the RNC the RNC showed up and my daughter was still in the porch and one stood behind her and the other stood in front of her apparently and she reported this to me and uh, they took her belongings she had her coat in her arms because she had it off at the hospital and she had her purse and she had a um, uh, a, a plush teddy with her Which she takes with her sometimes When she feels distressed So they took all of that from her And put her in the back of the police car She was crying and she told them That she was autistic and that she was epileptic And she wanted to call me Her mother They barked at her Admonished her for having a teddy bear Told her if she didn't control herself And stop crying that they would charge her With, a, with harassment so then they proceeded on their own little merry way with her in the back seat of the car totally distressed and brought her to the city lockup. When she got to the city lockup of course same thing happened in a way because they took her coat and things from her and took her clothes that she was wearing and made her put on the prison attire. And the lady, though, at the prison who was um, uh, charged with, you know, admitting her, I guess, uh, she listened to Rebecca and she listened to her telling her story of how she's autistic and she's epileptic and what's gone on here. And uh, so anyway... The prison guard, I guess she realized that this young lady didn't seem to belong in this environment right now because she called me. She took my daughter's information. She took my phone number from my daughter, and she called me. And she confirmed, of course, that my daughter's autistic and she's epileptic. And then she said, I don't smell any alcohol on her. Now, this whole scenario panned out from about 8 o'clock in the evening till about 20 after 9 when I got the phone call. So, I mean, if you were drinking, your alcohol is not gonna disappear from your breath or anywhere else in an hour and a half, if you're that bad off. So, of course, when she called me and told me that, I said, oh my goodness, can I come pick her up? She said, no, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to try and get in touch with the doctor. She, Your daughter is not charged with anything, so obviously it was the the statement of I wanted to, you know, kill myself or whatever that brought her there probably for her own safety. But the fact that the RNC or nobody would listen to her saying she wanted to call me, she could have come here and been safe, not be put in the lockup. But anyway, what happened was uh, the uh, security guard that called me indicated, you know, uh, that she had to call the doctor so she did do that and she called me back about 20 minutes later and said she was really sorry but the doctor couldn't come in which meant my daughter had to spend the night in the lockup so on we go i had to stay all night waiting now until morning so about 10 past 8 in the morning i get the phone call that my daughter's being released so i got in the car went down to pick her up she came out we got in the car started driving back to my home and so I said to her, You'll stay with me for a few days. Because after a mal seizure like that, uh, you know, the post-citadel state can last up to 36, 48, 72 hours. You can be a little bit drowsy and a little bit off, you know? So, anyway, when we got almost back to my house, my daughter realized that she didn't have her purse. She said, Oh, Mom, I haven't got my purse. So I said, Okay, I won't turn around. We'll go home. I'll phone down and see if they have it, and we'll go back. I'll go back and get it. So anyway, when we got home, I called, and the lockup said, no, sorry, there was no purse. You know, they make a list of what they take from you, and there's no purse. So I said, oh, my goodness, I wonder, did you forget it at the hospital where you were in a state of panic? So I called the hospital. We spoke to the security at the hospital, and anyway, after after some conversations back and forth over a period of maybe three phone calls, um, it was discovered that there was no purse to be found at the hospital. So then my next avenue, of course, would have been the RNC, which I did. I called the RNC, and uh, we were told, this was Thursday during the day, uh, because Wednesday night all of this happened, and uh, we were told that the police officers that handled her that night weren't working until... That evening, so I'd have to wait and call when they're on the job. So I said, okay. So we waited and we called, and I called three or four times uh, Thursday night because each time that we called, I mean, the person who passes on the messages, you know, that's all they could do was pass on the message to the officers. But the officers weren't getting back to us. So I said, oh my goodness, you know what's going on? They're not even letting us know anything. So, and then on Friday, I called again, still nothing. We couldn't get anyone to respond to us. So then it was the weekend, and I said, you know what? I don't know what to do. So we hung on, and then it came in my mind. I had spoken... Back a while, long while ago, to a superintendent with the RNC who seemed to be very receptive to improving uh, communication between the RNC officers on duty and any person, whether it be epileptic, autistic or just a regular person. So anyway, I told her the whole story and she checked into it. And that was on a Monday, the 13th of February. And and then on the 14th of February, one of the officers who had taken my daughter to the lockup called my home because she was still staying with me at that point because she had no keys to get into her place she had no identification she had all of her bank cards everything was in her purse and of course she didn't have any of that now she was released from the lockup, with nowhere to go nothing other than i was available Kath- if i was gone Kath- she would have been on the street
1: one second kathleen so there's a lot to this obviously oh, yeah, but what so. was the reason that she was going to be detained in the lockup period
2: Well, I'm assuming because I couldn't. I was told by the security guard she's not charged with anything. So to be put there, I think, might have been because she said. Uh, you know, I'd rather kill myself than get a needle, or I'll kill myself first, or something like that, you know, something ludicrous, because she panicked, because she's terrified of invasive, medically invasive procedures. I mean, you can put her on an x-ray table, an x-rayer all day and all night, and she won't flinch, but you come towards her with a catheter, or a needle, or anything like that, and she can, I mean, she can't help it. It's a panic attack. It's not She's not responsible for her actions when that happens to her. And Dr. Oganami, her neurologist, has indicated a panic attack can take a person completely away from their normal behavior, and it's not their fault. So that's I'm assuming that's why she was put in the lockup, for her protection, thinking she would kill herself. But the fact that she told them that she had somewhere else she could be with me, her mother, and they completely ignored that and basically were laughing at her because she had a teddy bear with her and because she was crying and distressed telling her to be to smarten up and be quiet or they were going to charge her with harassment and you know i mean all of that was horrible for her obviously she was in distress and treated so poorly and the fact that the hospital once witnessing a panic attack did nothing other than call the police I mean why couldn't they handle it they have mental health people working in a hospital don't they you know I just felt totally like my daughter was so disrespected on many levels with this
1: and so here we are fast forward to June has anything changed any more information any resolution to what you and your daughter went through
2: well uh, when the officer called her he asked her for her list of the things that she lost her purse and so on and that she would be financially reimbursed for it So we made the list and we sent it down. It wasn't very much money. We were very honest. I mean, we could have said she had a $500 purse, but we didn't. We said like $40 purse, et cetera. So anyway, uh, and it turned out she didn't even have any way to communicate because she had left her cell phone at home. I mean, she had a seizure. She wasn't thinking about what to take with her, you know. So her cell phone was in her apartment, and uh, so she didn't even have that with her. But anyway, uh, uh, we never received, or I should say we, my daughter didn't receive any reimbursement. It went on for weeks, and I just assumed, because I used to work with government, and I assumed sometimes it can take six to eight weeks. We'd have to deal with it all. Like, I helped her get everything she needed in place and help deal with the bank and all of that. And... uh, Anyway, it was only the 1st of June that she actually received reimbursement from the 8th of February to the 1st of June. It took that long, and the reason it took that long is because there was some fool up at the RNC or whatever, because I ended up again having to call that superintendent lady that I had spoken to before, and she was the one who fixed
1: it. Yeah, a lot of this seems to be about the missing purse. Did the RNC... Plain and simple, say that once your daughter said that she was suicidal. That until there's medical intervention by a healthcare professional and discharged by a doctor, that sort of ties their hands, doesn't it? I mean, like no, it, that's my understanding of how the RNC operates. If that's what you say, they one of two things: they need a doctor to discharge you, or you need to. They will present you to the waterfront for then the medical healthcare professionals, as opposed to law enforcement officers. So, did anyone ever spell it out as plainly as that?
2: No. Nobody ever said why she was uh, in the lockup instead of being released to me. Plus, nobody ever said why the hospital would call the RNC when someone is in so much distress. I mean, she was in the hospital, for God's sakes. <laughs> she wasn't on the street. You know, she wasn't anywhere. She was in the hospital. And and she herself had called the ambulance when she came out of the seizure. She knew she had had a bad seizure. She found herself on the floor, for God's sakes. And she had terrible bruising on her face and on her arms and knees and everything because, you know, she had, I guess, thrashed about with the seizure. And... Uh, None of that was looked at at the hospital. Sure. On triage, they never did anything with her. And, I, you know, since then, of course, I've been in touch with the hospital now very quickly afterwards to find out. And that's how I have the information that I do have.
1: It's, it's unbelievable that that wasn't recorded in the initial report. And I've never seen one up close to personal, but I have seen, whether it be on television or on, an actual legitimate real video about what a grand mal seizure could look like when it comes to the spasms that can be part of it or loss of consciousness what have you so terrifying to say the very least Uh, I'm sorry that it happened to you like this I do there's only one question that I can really ask because when it comes down to individual circumstance we very seldom get anywhere but to have a better understanding of what the actual protocol is is if i say that i'm suicidal at that point what can the police do period now that doesn't justify missing persons it doesn't address things like why she was uh, in police custody in the first place without being charged but that bit of protocol stuff i'll see if i can figure out uh anything else very quickly kathleen because i do have to go
2: uh, no, that's it, but I thank you for taking the call, and I just think that, oh, one thing I did do afterwards, um, it was I did contact our Epilepsy Newfoundland and Labrador Association, and uh, they've since, I think, uh, you know, we, we talked at length about this, obviously, but they since have made some kind of um, offer to have uh, officers within the force um, take some training on uh, what it means to be epileptic and what seizures can look like and what the post state can look like and things like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to have to – I know there's been additional training on a variety of fronts. There's a story that goes back to an autistic kid who was picked up on tops of the road. I know mental health training and something called the Memphis Model is in practice at the RNC, but the protocols for exactly how someone ends up at the lockup and then declares they're suicidal, what happens next, what's supposed to happen next, that's something I'll try to figure out, just to make sure that I'm on the right track. Uh, well, Kathleen, well. I appreciate your time. I wish you good luck.
2: Is there one more thing I could tell you. If it has home. to be very quick. Yes, uh, I just want to say that after checking with the RNC, finding out that, uh, yes, they do have an autistic uh, registry, but it's useless because I suggested, you know, couldn't the the officers have just called in to their dispatch or whatever and said, can you check and see if this person's on the registry? And uh, I was told that there's no such thing. They can't do that.
1: And I don't know what the purpose of a registry is if it's not being uh, utilized. Exactly. Uh, Thank you, Kathleen.
0: You're very welcome. Thank take care.
3: You.
1: Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, when we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away.
0: Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking.
1: Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Murray, you're on the
0: air. Good morning, Patty. Morning, sir. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. What do you think
4: of them Golden Knights?
1: Good for them. They had a pretty thick team. You know, no massive superstar. I guess beyond Stone or Marshall who looked pretty great as the Consmouth winner. Goaltender came out of virtually nowhere. The, someone they picked up for a, a fourth-round pick. But good for them. They had a great, really nice-looking team.
4: Exactly. I'm calling you about the Fiona disaster funding again here on the southwest coast. Okay. It's nine months since the storm. I haven't heard a thing about me house. or just, they just keep saying the same thing, they're going to do something. And we just announced just announced in Port of Bass now, yesterday or Friday, they're taking down another 50 or 60 houses. Now, and the disaster funding is telling me is not Fiona money that's doing it. They're going to take those houses down. There's houses up there, I went and looked at them, Patty, 50, 60 feet above sea level. They're taking them down. And if it's not Fiona money, it's taxpayers' money. And I'm sure the taxpayers are pleased to beautify port Abbas with 15 or $20 million.
1: Yeah, I think the pot of money from the province was $30 million. So we don't know who is taking down these 50 or 60 homes or why this is happening? Mm-hmm. I mean, were they deemed uninhabitable and they couldn't be salvaged? Or do we know anything beyond the fact that someone says they're hauling down 50 or 60 homes?
4: No, they didn't have any problem with Fiona. I told you they're 50 and sixty feet, some of them above sea level. They Sydney the aerial survey and just classed as a flood zone. So, where does that leave our houses down there? Port of Bath is only nine miles straight shore from Burn Islands. My house is sitting in water every two weeks now, every moon, full moon, new moon, I get water in my basement. I'm not on a flood zone. So, what's going on? I don't know. Have you heard anything? A VOCM heard anything?
1: No, that's the first I heard of these additional homes. The last numbers that I recall is somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 homes because of water damage in particular were deemed to be uninhabitable and or had been complete losses, period. But, of course, when we're talking about a post-tropical storm, it needn't only be a storm surge that gets you. It could be all kinds of things, including wind. But I have not heard about that. So if it's gone from 100 to 160 and monies have not flowed, now, apparently, some people told me they do indeed have some support already in hand from the government. They didn't identify or, or itemize exactly what that support was and if it was full monies for rebuilding or if and when they were going to rebuild in the same spot. But there's been a lot of silence on this one.
4: Petty Friday they announced it. They're calling the people in Portobello, and they were doing this all winter. Tell the people, don't do any work with your own. We're taking ahead of it. And the houses up there that... Fiona destroyed, that's all cleaned up, all settled. The homes are at now is homes that had no problem with Fiona, and they're just telling them we're going to take you out of it because you're on a flood line or something, flood zone.
1: Murray, what department do you deal with directly when you try to contact the provincial government?
4: Well, I've been talking to Andrew Parsons. I've been talking to Randy Sims. I've been talking to Premier Fury's office. I've been talking to the Fiona Disaster Funding. Well, I've, I don't know who else to call. I've had the Halifax News Channel here, two days. They were here going around with their TV cameras. I don't think it's not aired yet on their channel. Showing them the state my property is in here. And and uh, well, one fellow even told me the other day, he called me and he was pretty ticked off because we were calling so much, try to get something done with our house. He said, at least you're sleeping in your own bed. There was a lot around here, Patty, sleeping in your own bed if they didn't destroy their own houses.
1: Yeah, I know that story too. Uh, and I guess someone who may indeed be one of or the person who was doing that sent me a brutal email. Oh my God, came up one side of me, down the other. I didn't do anything. Uh, Anyway, Murray, we'll follow up with the, uh, you know, Andrew Parsons has been pretty good to try to offer information, plus inside his ministerial portfolio, a lot that we need to discuss with him. So I'll probably have to go to his office, see if they can give us a better understanding about what's the stall, what these next 50 or 60 homes are, why they're being pulled down or hauled down or torn down and who's paying for it. Is it out of that $30 million or is there another pot of money or what is it?
4: Well, that's what needs to be known. That we're supposed to be trying to get a meeting together there for Wednesday night to see because we're only nine miles, Patty, straight shore from Port of Bass, you know. What hits yep. Port of Bass is going to hit here. <laughs> and, and uh, well, apparently there's nothing for the coast, only Port of Bass. That's, that's what we're gathering now. now. I don't understand it. I'm uh, go I want to go ahead and water do. in my basement again. The basement has broke off now. My house now is broke off right down from the top, right down through the ground.
1: So what, do, what does that mean? The house has come apart from the foundation?
4: Well, the engineer came here. The first time he came, he wouldn't talk to me. I said, do you see anything? He said, uh, I can't tell you anything. Uh, 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 they got to go to the office. So he, he left, but they sent him back again in, I guess it was January. And the first thing he went, he walked to a crack down through my basement. He said, Look, your basement is broke now. So if he seen it and didn't report it, he wouldn't do any job. And if he didn't see it, he wouldn't do any job again. And if if it wasn't there, that means my house now is settling down and the basement is broken coming apart. So I don't know what else to turn to.
1: Uh, David, can we see if uh, either Minister Parsons or whoever they think is the appropriate Fiona relief uh, minister to talk about this this morning? Because it's been pretty silent after all the attention, all the devastation, all hands rallying together, and here we are nine months later. I appreciate the update, Murray. Thanks for the call.
4: I got another thing. As of June 5th, the, the, the adjuster that came here when Fiona went through... Like we were fighting and fighting and fighting. June the fifth we got a phone call from the adjuster. She just posts our disaster. Just post in the damage, the June the fifth. It was sitting on her disc from from September twenty fourth to June the fifth. That was the private adjuster sent here by the government. She was hired by the government. To come here and assist the damages and if she called the, the 4th or the 6th of June and said I just got it post the 5th that went into the office 8 months over 8 months what do you think of that
1: oh, I, I I'm confused about the lag here. I know full well, it's never a really simple and expedient turnaround on some of these types of issues that deal with government, not insurance companies, because as people uh, painfully found out, a lot of storm surge damage, if not all storm surge damage was not covered by anybody's insurance policy, but I'm a little surprised that there's still as many unknowns as there are nine months later out on the southwest coast, whether that be in of Basque or communities that were all right in the crosshairs of Fiona when the storm made landfall so we will indeed try to get the right person to speak to the timelines the additional homes that you speak to uh, spoke about about 50 60 well above sea level no storm damage from the ocean and their houses are going away who's paying for it i'll find out
4: Okay, Patty. thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Murray, all the best. We'll
4: back out the to listen to the show. Oh, oh, boy. Thank you. All the best. Thank you, my, my
1: pleasure. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, you know, we talk about, about a lot of stuff about school safety and safety programs regarding children and acknowledging where things are, who the problems may be, the red flags, what to do about it. Connie's up after this, and then we're going to talk about dancing. All right, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Connie, you're on the air.
3: Oh, good morning, Patty. How are you doing?
1: Doing okay, thank you. How about
3: you? Good, good. Um, Patty, calling again about the Kids in the Know program. And just for your listeners, I'll recap what that's about. It's a body safety program that has been offered through um, the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. It's a national Safety Education Program, and it is a national program uh, except here in Newfoundland. Um, In our Atlantic provinces, it's been in place in Nova Scotia since 2009 and in New Brunswick since 2014, and it's in place in every province and every territory in the country except here. Um, The main reason I wanted to call this morning, and I tried calling last week actually but things were busy. I wanted to clarify something that Dr. Hagee talked about on a phone call to you on June the 8th. Okay. Um, Dr. Hagee during that call said that there was basically a program in place in the schools already. Uh, You had asked him about it and we appreciated that. he was referring to a program called SEL, which is basically a social and emotional learning program. And while we're glad that program is in place for students, uh, they, they learn about managing their emotions, for instance, having empathy, solving problems. Uh, how we refer to that program, it's one of heart. mind but it has nothing to do with physical body safety and that's what the miles for smiles foundation has been focused on since 2018 we've been trying our best to lobby for that program to be in schools here and just to reiterate the point as to uh, the rationale um, ten years ago When we were talking with you, we were talking about four new cases of child abuse every day. Uh, Well, those numbers have increased over 200% in the past decade based on recent numbers. And uh, that's a lot, Patty. That is a lot. In in that past five years since we've been looking for this program we've made very little headway Um, in 2019 we were told by Tony Stack, uh, who was the CEO of uh, Newfoundland Laboratory Eastern School District, that they were looking into the Kids in the Know program. And since that time, that's four years ago, and since that time there has been a pilot project offered, but we're lobbying now and lobbying hard saying that it's time for this program to be implemented in all schools in Newfoundland and Labrador. And that can be done for a cost of $25,000. Yes, teachers would have to do Uh, A small amount of training during a PD day of which there are plenty so I guess it all depends on priorities buddy you know we've been um, subject to I guess uh, some new information this year about the government's budgeting program and particularly the one around health issues It's called, I believe, the program that government has been focused on is Your Health, Our Priority. That's what it was entitled. And it was focused on, is focused on, improving the lives of the people of this province. Well, I can't think of a better way to spend $25,000 out of a $3.9 billion program to help with the lives of children in our province. I, I don't get it. We had a recent case of uh, a 14-year-old being abducted. Um, you know, you carry the story uh, quite uh, repeatedly on BOCM. um, A young woman who was abducted by three people and one of those being from New Brunswick who was charged with luring. And... You know, online luring has seen a 55% increase in a one-year period from 2021 to 2022. We had a 55% increase in that crime alone. Like, it's time for our children to start learning how to protect their body. For
1: sure. Uh, You know, the issue is this is not new that needs to be dissected and test-driven for age appropriateness this is a well-established well understood program and it has been uh, had positive impact and results in other parts of the country so a lot of the work has already been done the two issues that I can't wrap my mind around are why a pilot project I mean who gets to be the person or the entity that gets to decide which uh, schools and the children who are students of that school will get some Enhanced body safety protection tips and advice and guidance, you know, and who gets left by the wayside. Secondly, Even if there is an additional cost beyond $25,000, you rightfully point out, there is a calendar of professional development days. And, you know, I guess in the world of priorities and hierarchy, we simply look at what those days are scheduled to uh, address, and then we back one out that can maybe be done uh, the following school year, and we put the priority on things. Like we all all share this, is protection of children when it comes to this type of program. You know, there's all kinds of child protection conversations which are, unbelievable but this one is meaningful so who gets to be with the one to pick what schools should be safer and are we not pretending that some pd day can indeed be rescheduled for the following year and put this on top so those are my two thoughts on it connie before they flag me off to the news i'll give you the final word
3: well, I appreciate you saying that, Patty, because that's what we're uh, wondering about too. What are the priorities? Let's raise our children up, and let's put them first in this equation. Um, we, you know, you had a call from Robin Legro on Friday, I believe, about the book Up River. She she referred to the book Up River, and that's what we're talking about. Like, why aren't we taking this preventative step of seeing why so many children are falling through the cracks? Uh, We have had, since we've started our strong lobbying efforts this year, we've had six teachers tell us that there is nothing in the school around body safety. So, you know, I... I wanted to clarify that for the listeners because I think there might have been, um, you know, a bit of misdirection there on the part of Dr. Heggy at the time. And the last thing I'll say, Patty, is that, you know, we need this program for our children. Uh, it's vital. It's critical. Um, let's Let's just get it done uh, i I don't get it. I'm asking people now and pleading with people who are listening. Please go to a new website that we've created. BodySafetyNL.com, and there's a letter there to send to your MHA. All you have to do is click on your member's name, and we'll send the letter for you. It takes about 20 to 30 seconds and could make a big difference in reducing this 200% plus increase that we've seen in children being abused. And don't forget that these same children who are vulnerable now are growing up to be the the adults at risk. You know, there's a, a very direct connection you can make between children who are in dysfunctional environments now or being abused now. And in our province, we have very high rates of mental health issues Uh, you know, other physical health issues, homelessness, suicide, the whole gamut. And we need to stop children from falling in the river before we're trying to fish them out as adults.
1: Appreciate the time, Connie. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Sharon, you stay right there to talk about dancing and a competition upcoming. And then property assessments, it's getting a lot of attention, rightfully so. Neil wants to talk about his. Don't go away.
0: Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Well beginning on the thirtieth of June, running to the
1: eighth of July is the World Cup Finals, a dance world cup coming in Braga in Portugal. Join us on line number four to talk about it is Sharon. Hi Sharon, you're on the air.
5: Hi, good morning. How are you? Doing
1: okay. How you doing?
5: I'm not too bad. Uh, Calling, for me, it's a bit of good news, hopefully for everybody else, but we have 13 young ladies here from uh, Newfoundland who actually got selected to attend the World Cup in Braga on the uh, Canadian team this year. This is the first time Newfoundland or Navador people will be attending this competition although Canada has been competing for about 30 years.
1: So I didn't we- even know this was a thing until I saw on the subject line the World Dance Cup in Portugal so I had yeah. a look 62 mm-hmm. countries 120,000 competitors all genre dance competition so what are yeah. our dancers competing in?
5: Oh, everything. Okay. Lyrical, uh, I mean, they're, they're just such a wide range of, of dancers. They have, uh, they're doing lyrical, tap, contemporary. Um, the girls, like, are just, we have all girls. There are boys and girls attending from Canada. But in Newfoundland, we have 13, 11 to 17-year-olds attending. They leave on Sunday to go to Toronto. And uh, there they'll meet up with the rest of the competitors for the Canadian team. And uh, they'll do a couple of dress rehearsals here. They'll do uh, pictures up there in Toronto and whatnot. And then they'll leave on Wednesday to go to Portugal, where they had 10 days of dance.
1: (laughs) How do they get selected? Do they have to dance in some qualifiers or regionals or is there judges that simply select them? How does that work?
5: Well, in every province that I'm aware of, but even here in Newfoundland, we have what we call (laughs) competition season. So usually in the spring of the year, there are dance companies from just about anywhere that come to Newfoundland, and uh, the dance schools put their students, anybody that's on their competition teams, into these competitions. While at the competitions, you can qualify to take part in, uh, qualify, I guess, to be tested to see if you can go on to a competition team for Canada uh there are hundreds of girls and boys that that try out like it's just amazing how many kids are involved in dance people don't think it's a sport Boy, oh boy!
1: <laughs> well, we just had professional cornhole uh, at the Remax Center over the weekend. What was once a backyard campfire game is now yep. got a professional circuit. So everything yep. could be quite competitive. Certainly, dancing is. How many television shows that are competitions mm-hmm. about talent feature dance? I mean, exactly.
5: Yeah. yeah, exactly. One of those thirteen-year-olds that is going is my lovely granddaughter, who's twelve, and she is super excited. And I just wanted to give a plug to, as I said that. Canada has had a team for almost 30 years. This is the first year that we have 13 participants going from the ages of 11 to 17. Remarkable.
1: So. Tell us about your granddaughter. Where does she dance? What kind of dance is she competing in?
5: Oh, she dances everything. She dances <laughs> her life. She's 12 years old, soon to be, soon to be 13, but uh, she dances with... Um, the dance oh my god dance studio I can't even think of the name for dance school now I've got that many but she does lyrical tap ballet Um, she's what other kids do for hockey in regards to you know 24-7 type thing she does for dance right and I mean just the the money involved the dedication involved the costumes uh, it's just unbelievable So I just wanted to put a plug out there. The girls will be up there dancing. The competition is for 10 days. They have an opening ceremony, the same as any other sport. Um, They will obviously get to do some touring of the area, but it'll be 10 days of dance.
1: It sounds great to me. I'm glad you called about it because it's a nice change of pace from some other issues that we talk about. Which, oh, yeah. Which I welcome. <laughs> but, I mean, I think it's just, you know, not only do you get a chance to compete on the international stage, but, mm-hmm. you know, a trip to Portugal,
5: if nothing oh, else. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. And, I mean, this year there's 65 countries participating in it. So I'm like, you meet people from everywhere. You know, so uh, it'll be an experience for sure. I volunteered to chaperone, but her, her mama vetoed that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you couldn't just tag along.
5: Oh, I would have loved to.
1: <laughs> no doubt.
5: <laughs> oh my! Anyway, I just like I say, I wanted to wish the girls good luck and let let people here know that like we've got great kids going to this competition. Cheer them on! Go Canada! Go! One
1: hundred percent, and you know, not to be too corny, but. But, you know, music has that, that unifying force. I would imagine the same for dance, right? Because oh, yeah. you're, you're not making some sort of statement here. You're enjoying something you're passionate yep. about. And uh, by the sound of it, she puts in a ton of effort to be qualified enough and good enough and interested enough to go to yep. a World Dance Cup. I think is brilliant. Wish her safe travels and good luck for me.
5: I will indeed. Thank right. you for the time.
1: My pleasure, Sharon.
5: Okay. Right, bye-bye.
1: bye-bye. Uh, there you go. 120,000 competitors. No small potatoes For the first time ever 13 dancers from this province They just so happen to all be girls This time around Great stuff uh, Let's go to line number two Neil you're on the air
6: Yes good morning Patty. Uh, thanks very much for taking my call No problem uh, First of all I suppose we should say uh, Welcome to global cooling here in Newfoundland Rather than global warming Well but we anyway, can welcome climate change Yeah <laughs> Yes. Uh anyway, I'm going about the uh municipal property assessment uh notes that that been uh, sent out and certainly uh, it's been a hot topic the last uh week or so. And uh trying to figure out uh you know how it all works or why they're doing the way they're doing it and uh, and how 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 it happens. Uh Patty, I uh, spoke to you probably a year and a half ago, and uh, regarding the same thing, we—I'm uh, calling from the town of Alleen. We were assessed uh, twice in the same year, so we were trying to find out uh, why. You know, you would get two assessments in one year. But anyway, after uh, some. Uh, digging up some information regarding that uh, there is ways that uh, that did happen. And uh, number one uh, is, you know, it, it comes out uh, yearly from the municipal assessment agency. And if a, if the town doesn't really like the assessments that they receive, uh, they can request another one, pay a fee, and request another assessment.
1: So you're saying a community can do that on behalf of all residents or individual residents can pay their 25 bucks and go through the appeal?
6: Uh, no, no, nothing to do with the appeal. Uh, what it is is, okay, so they do their annual uh, assessment, goes back to the towns, and, you know, if the towns don't like uh, how much the assessment was, they can request back to the agency to have another assessment done. The town will have to pay the agency assessment to come in and then do another town assessment. And uh, that's what happened back here a year and a half ago. So uh, not only was it a twofold, I guess, uh, uh, they didn't uh, like what Happened in the first uh, one, so they requested another one, which again then put up the uh, residents' taxes uh, more, their assessments, not their taxes, their assessments. Uh, Well, our assessments are our taxes is based on our assessments that we, we get from the previous year.
1: Well it, yeah, it's based on your assessment and then the council will evaluate whether or not they move the mill rates and then you end up with a property tax yeah
6: right so let's not let's not even factor the mill rate in because uh, most times now uh, what's happening is the mill rates are not going up uh, and that's fine the councils are are, are saying you know, okay, our taxes are not going up this year or whatever. But uh, on the other side of the coin, they know that the assessment notices are coming out and uh, most likely the uh, assessments are going to go up. So uh, if your assessment goes up, you're paid the meal rate and the new assessment. So uh, for Why, example...
1: I, just wait, let me ask a question. Why was there ever two assessments done in the same year? Does anybody know? Is it because of an appeal, or is it because they just did two assessments? I didn't follow that part. Okay. So
6: the town made an appeal to the assessment agency. Uh, so the first one came back after after the initial assessment. And uh, I guess when they looked at it all and sized it up, uh, you know... They weren't gaining too much from from the from the tax assessments, and I believe at that time uh, we were back over sort of covid and everything else was on the go, so a lot of assessments went down rather than went up so the town then requested another assessment, so they would have to pay the assessment agency a fee to come in to the town and do another assessment. So then they come in again and they do a full assessment. They go around, they do every property uh, in in the town. So that's where that second one comes in play. Okay? So, you know, when we look at it there this way, not only... uh, is the town uh, using it probably as a tax grab as such. Uh, we also paid at that particular time our tax dollars had to pay for the town to appeal to the agency to come in and do another assessment, which the town had to pay out to, to the That's municipal. right. Got that part, yeah. Okay. So, you know... Uh, and request has come in from the council, so now then uh, moving on uh you know you had a story under uh, last week from uh mayor Marystown brian keating and and I think he hit the nail on the head there, you know he had the the right uh right way of thinking of you know. People is tax grab for for uh, smaller towns and towns around, and uh, he did say in a nutshell, you know, uh, we're actually going to lose if if we're trying to you know g- gouge people by in, by getting their assessments put up and so on and so forth. I, you know, I'm looking at the uh, assessment notes here now couple questions under, you know, uh, sort of, one says, does the agency visit every property? And the answer is no. Our schedule of field visits is determined by property sales and physical changes. Okay, so you heard on your show, uh, since this started up last week or whatever, people, one lady in Marystown, $40,000, had nothing else done. Not one thing that she had done, yet her property uh, went up uh, $40,000. Uh, so there was no physical changes, and, you know, they determined on, on property sales. Uh Next question is, uh, how is the property assessed? And then they say, is it assessed an actual value in, uh, when estimating the market value, the assessor analyzes property sales in the area, okay? So your house is worth $500,000, and mine's worth $200,000, and someone else's is... is, is your sales for $500,000. So that means now the lower end, uh, according to this, their value is based on the sales in the area,
1: which, you know... uh, yeah it's not a straight line there though right like so if I have a home in my neighborhood that like there's an example right where on the street I live Uh, fellow three doors down he put a second story on his home in a street full of bungalows and and split back splits so his home will be inherently more valuable than mine given square footage what have you so when we talk about comparables it's not as simple as well number six on your street sold for this so number 36 is worth the same amount of money there is a relationship but it's not a straight comparable where they just used that most recent sale because there's different values for different homes. You could have a brand-new kitchen, bedroom, bathroom, uh, back deck, new fence, uh, manicured lawn, as opposed to someone up the road who couldn't care less about their house, and the kitchen is straight from 1974. So there's differences therein, but there is a relationship. I don't think it's as direct as some people think it is.
6: Well, uh, that that that's true to a sense, but, you know, uh, when, when you look at... Uh, uh, what they have uh, put here on on their, on their farms and, and how it's done, uh, estimating on the market value. yes, I mean you can think what that way the way you just said it. I agree with you, but uh, you know, and then I, then I can go back and say, uh, no, our schedule of field visits is determined by property sales and physical changes. So they, you know, buddy drives up the road, and he looks in at your property, and he says, hmm, "You know, I think I, yeah, that one needs to go up or whatever because someone else is up the road sold or or so on so forth. Yet you didn't do not one one thing to your home."
1: That's right. Same uh, thing in mine. I haven't done anything since I was last assessed. My assessment went up. Nothing is earth-shattering some other sticker shocks that we've heard reported. $30,000, 40000 $50,000 for homes that have seen no improvement no change hasn't been sold in the recent past one lady sent me a, le- uh, a note with a screen grab of hers she lives on a little side road where there are four homes nobody has moved out of those homes in the past 20 years 20 years nobody in the neighborhood did anything but one fellow put up a new fence because the fence blew down and their assessments all went right through the roof i mean it just doesn't make any sense right so what's that based on who knows what uh, neil last word to you quick because i do have to get to a break
6: uh yeah, okay. So uh you know, uh, your uh, news uh, station had on uh, somebody there from probably a uh, municipal agency the other day and uh, you had to fight with him to try to get uh some uh, some answers and all he done was went around the tree, you know. He never he never come up with uh no. uh the the right uh <laughs> right answers all they done
4: was
1: try to get around it and he didn't want to come morning. out with me we invited him on directly they said they didn't want to do that and i did eventually hear them on the news but they didn't want to come out with me anyway that's all
6: but I very quick very quickly quick, quick. Neil, before
1: i go yes uh,
6: uh, and then they come they go to the appeal so then not only that they're asking you to pay 25 dollar fee yep. to appeal too you know, uh, the, the, these people are civil servants, paid by us and everybody, uh, and then they want you to pay a fee just just to do a PL2. But it also says, you know, you can call in without having to pay that and uh, whatever. So you call in and, and you get a, a recording and uh, they may get back to you in two to three business days. So yep. you know, uh, right. good luck with that, I say.
1: Well, I'm going to try them one more time. They initially said no, but let's see if they have a different uh, thought when I email them again today. I uh, appreciate the call, Neil. Thanks a lot. Okay, Petty. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye.
3: Yeah,
1: bye now. All right, let's uh, take a break. When we go back, traffic, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line one. Jim, you're on the air.
7: Oh, good morning. I've, I've been, I I've was talking about, I live in Briggis, and I, I attended a council meeting last Tuesday, I believe it was, or whatever, it was the 12th, I think, or, but it doesn't matter, uh, and I offered them some proposal for the beach, the tunnel, here in Briggis, yep. You know the tunnel, I presume you, I think, you know where it is. And across the street from the town, there's vacant land between the tunnel and the church up on the hill. And there were, in years past, two or three homes there. And they belonged to uh, uh, names that could be historic names in Tobrigus and that area. And I was hoping that Brighis would probably would uh, designate that area as a heritage area and make it a, a draw for a tourist to come to Brigus and see the tunnel and, and read the history of the families that lived there. Uh, I mean, Captain Bob Bartman, as you know, or I think, put the tunnel through. And they had his home here in Brighis, the Kent Cottage, which is Often, always uh, visited by tourists, and his tunnel could be tied in with the Cape Cottage. Uh, and across from the tunnel is the the Pomeroy pro- property, which was the chief engineer with Bob Bartlett. Whether he visited the North and uh, the schooner, he was his chief engineer. So and then next to him is the, the Spratford property, which was the first people to live in Briggan. They came over the hill from Cupids into Briggan. So you've got some really old history names that could be put down there uh, across from the tunnel as a draw for people to come and read and. Uh, and and, uh, protect that property for years to come. Not for me. I mean, I'm old.
1: But, but Jim, uh, Brigas does a pretty good job in some of these storyboards or historical information boards, and there's certainly no shortage of traffic and visitors to Brigus. We were out there one day last summer. It was bumper to bumper throughout the entire community. The place was buzzing.
7: I went across the... uh, the, the road to the tunnel, which they call the the walk, which used to be the boilers, because everybody, the fishermen boil their nets down there. and uh, But uh, the road uh, is 11 feet wide, and they have a, a two-way road. I, I mean, how do you pass a car in 11 feet? You don't. No. So there's a tie-up of a traffic down, there, which I've been complaining to them. Uh, they made it a one-way from North Street, or whatever well, they call not North Street, the bridge the up there, down over the hill to the beach. That's a one-way down. The other rest of the road from the beach to Riverhead, or Irish Town Road, uh, Riverhead Road, is two-way. So everybody that goes down to the beach to visit the beach... They had to turn around, down at the beach, and try and get back over that 11 foot wide road. So, and that's where the tie up of traffic is, so I've asked, you know, to really consider making it a uh, one-way, and they said, well, we'll take it into consideration. Really, there's no consideration to be needed because if they come over and look, they'll see the cars from all areas of the world or Canada and uh, the United States uh, stopped over there trying to get through to the beach because well, there's cars coming uh, back Of course. From the
1: beach. I've backed up from the tunnel to the beach before because it's absolutely yeah. impossible to pass, especially if you have two larger vehicles coming in opposing That's directions. Uh, I appreciate the time. Uh, Jim, anything else very quickly before I have to go?
7: Well, I'd like to make sure that the, the council realizes the historic area there that they should protect. And I hear from them, well, it's going to cost us money to expropriate the land. There's a piece of land across the street right now for sale for $180,000. If that piece of land is happens to be sold, then there's no place for the tunnel visitors to even park because his fence will come right out to the road and you can't block off 11 foot road. No. So we're leaving nothing down there for tourists to come up and park across from the tunnel and visit the tunnel. So to me, it's a gold mine there for the town to bring is to draw people and, and to, to develop it properly. And I mean, they don't have to do it all in one day. They can do it in 10 years over a period and i'm sure there is lots of money in government grants or whatever they call those things to help develop that so i wish that you know the council would Mm -hmm. really think about it and and know what they have down there and what they can draw people to and not this year next year for 50 years
1: i appreciate the time jim thank you for this
7: all right, Patty, Take thank care. you. All
1: right, bye bye. All right, let's uh, get back on track with the break. So, amongst the suite of pandemic supports, one of them was the Canada Emergency Business Account. I believe the number somewhere in the neighborhood of 900,000 small businesses across, across the country availed of this. Only in the neighborhood of maybe 8 to 12% have repaid their loan. The deadline is quickly approaching. What that means for business in the country? Uh, coming up right after the break is the Vice President Atlantic of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Louis Philippe Cote. Don't
0: go away take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the VP Atlantic for the CFIB.
1: That's the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. That's Louis-Philippe Gauthier. Good morning, Monsieur Gauthier. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. So there was a ton of different types of pots of money or envelopes of money to try to help individuals and businesses through the beginnings of the pandemic at least and the CEBA was helpful obviously but it was kind of the last thing some businesses need it was out of the uh, necessity to take some of these loans as opposed to the want to take on additional debt but here comes the repayment schedule which was always going to happen first off just the bare bones how did the account work and where are we with the deadline for repayment
8: well, essentially, the SIBA came in two different flavors, if you will. There was one that was a $40,000 loan, and then you could have it extended to sixty, uh, depending on the criteria. And uh, there was uh, 25% on the first part, so 10000 that could be uh, forgivable. And with the additional sixty, it could go to $20,000. So uh, to your point that you just made, uh, businesses were shut down by the health orders of government, not because they wanted to, but essentially uh, many of them, uh, with uh, over 900,000 small businesses and businesses across the country, taking advantage of uh, that loan uh, to keep to pay their bills, to keep their businesses uh, and their bills paid. Um, Essentially, that's a lot of businesses that ha- are coming up to repayment date.
1: And there was the essence of picking winners and losers. Big box stores, big multinationals, doors open. Some of the Canadian small businesses owned and operated by mom-and-pop type shops closed. So that really was a massive problem right from the get-go. So where are we with the deadline?
8: Well, the deadline right now is December 31st of this year, as you can appreciate uh with the reality that uh, at this point, we've got a lot of debt uh, for many businesses that are still on the books uh, from the pandemic. And there's still half of the businesses that aren't making normal revenues. In other words, they haven't, uh, bring, brought back their revenues to what it was before the pandemic. For some, it's going great, but for a lot of them, that's not the reality. So right now, from our data uh, that we uh, accumulated, there's only about 10% of our members that have really fully repaid the SIBA loan at this time. And there's 78% that I've, haven't even made a payment yet. So it's a huge amount of businesses that are facing that deadline uh, of this year, and that's why we're asking the government to push it back.
1: What sectors have been left out of some of the economic rebound, because for some sectors doing very well, the annualized GDP growth back in April is somewhere around 3.2%, a little bit ahead of where the market thought. So what type of businesses are still in that, not back to pre-pandemic revenue levels?
8: Well, uh, of course, there's there's some in in every sector, but the uh, overarching sectors that are the most impacted, you'd be talking about arts and recreation, information, hospitality, uh, social services sector, and and they're also part right now of the category based on our data that are most likely to miss the deadline of uh, December 31st, where if they pay it by that time, uh, they have a portion of it that's forgivable. So, if they miss the deadline, then everything turns into a a normal loan, and at that point, uh, essentially, they have to repay the entirety of it.
1: So, what are you asking for for increase in forgivable amount and/or extension of deadline? Well,
8: we're asking the federal government to push it back to December uh, 2025, or at least until next year, 2024, uh, considering increasing the forgivable portion. And there's also an issue with there's quite a few businesses that have been deemed uh, not uh eligible that received the money but that have been told uh you weren't supposed to get it uh now there should be a um an appeals process for those businesses at this
1: time. Yeah, now there was lots of news stories about clawing back money from people who were technically ineligible for the CERB, including some small business owners who they weren't really fully informed as to whether or not they could or should and were eligible for those monies. And we've seen a lot of those clawback stories. Then there's companies that for the very first time with the emergency wage subsidy, you know, uh, increasing dividends and stock buyback and uh, increased revenue, notably the Royal Ottawa Golf Club. We got an extra million bucks. Why? Wage It was never intended for that. So what do you say to folks who are saying simple things? So you knew what the pot of money represented, you knew how much was forgivable, you knew you'd have to repay it in time, so like everyone else who has to repay their loans from a financial institution or to the government, why wouldn't it be the same for your businesses? What are the implications?
8: Well, when you look at the data, you see that it's the very small businesses. You need the few that are it's the larger categories, but it's the very small businesses that for no fault of their own, they were shut down by government. Now, you have to repay a loan. There's no question there. The question becomes right now, is the deadline too close? And based on our data, it's clearly evident for a large swath of businesses that repaying it now uh, would add uh, severe strain on their businesses because they already have additional debt that have accumulated. And uh, if they can't repay it, well, then it becomes completely all of a loan and that wasn't really the intent of the program. So hopefully, uh, government will heed our message and the data that we're presenting and actually consider, you know, it's still time for the government to make that decision and to work with the banks, uh, which were the mechanism, of course, to lend that money. Uh, to extend the
1: deadline. So in the world of repaying the loan, is it simply as it stands today, have it repaid in full, you know, excluding the forgivable amount, or if the government says, okay, willing to discuss the issue with the CFIB for an extended payment schedule, where payments continue to be made, or is it all simply about a lump sum deadline?
8: Uh, It's uh, basically to get access to the uh, forgivable portion, you have to repay the full loan. So that's that's the reality. Uh, and then after, if you don't, uh, then at that point it turns into a loan where you have a payment schedule that uh, to repay it uh, with the financial institution that uh, you took the money from. So the, 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 the reality is from our perspective with the debt the amount of debt load that the businesses have incurred, especially on the smaller size of businesses, it's important to have the forgivable portion there like it was intended. And uh, with their financial, their, their revenue situation not having been brought back to where it is, was before the pandemic, getting access to uh, that forgivable portion is still very much important. So the deadline should be pushed back.
1: Uh, I think I saw on my social media feed that there's a petition circulated. Give the folks the location of that before we take on another subject.
8: Well, thank you for that. For small businesses owners that want to sign a petition, and we've got over twenty-one thousand that are signed, they can head to cfi.b.ca. It's right on the
1: front page. I didn't prepare myself for this, but I do find this to be an interesting subject. It's the concept of uh, interprovincial trade. I mean, we have created fictitious barriers from province to province, all I would suppose in an effort to protect their own sectors, whether it be with breweries or wineries or other things that create jobs in these different provinces. So we've created these barriers. It comes at a cost of billions of dollars to Canadian consumers. I know there's a Canada Free Trade Agreement, or I think that's what it's called. Paint the picture to the folks for what these trade barriers mean. There's been some minuscule movement on it. You're allowed to bring X number dozen beer into Newfoundland from New Brunswick. You can bring an extra couple of bottles of wine from British Columbia to Alberta but those are the epitome of baby steps to try to make it better for the consumer and I would suggest for the competitive landscape for the business as well
8: well it's definitely an impediment and uh, for years now uh, of course as you can appreciate it's something that we've been actively working on we're now at the point to your to the reality it's some steps have been taken some uh, work has been done by the provincial governments since the new uh, law has been in place, but we're now at the point where we're calling on the provinces uh, to mutually recognize uh, the the, the, the rules, if you will, from one province to the other. In other words, hacking at it and and working on the little pieces left and right uh, to make things better and let products and services and workforce flow across borders easier. Uh, is not yielding results as quickly as it should. So we're at the point that we've been asking for over a year now uh, to the provincial governments, just mutually recognize the rules uh, between uh, one province to the other and and let's just move forward and allow businesses and workers to to cross the borders within their own country without feeding uh, red tape left and
1: right. Yeah, Red tape long been one of the issues that CFIB talks about. Uh, Very last one before I let you go, Mr. Gauthier. This is about uh, the price of gas or the price of diesel or any price of fuels. So I think I remember reading that you're calling for the federal government to scrap the federal excise tax, which is 10 cents. It's been that since it was implemented a couple of decades ago. Then it's the federal carbon tax, of which comes with now. We're on the federal scheme as of the 1st of July in this province. It comes with a, quote-unquote, rebate. But inside the world of business, for the customer... Our thoughts are that any additional costs, especially when we talk about transportation costs for uh, foodstuffs or otherwise, they're getting passed along to me, so why would it be on the front burner for the CFIB when businesses do have the opportunity to pass along these additional expenses regarding fuel and transportation, right to me, as their end customer?
8: Well, the the reality is that... When you look at passing on costs to consumers, uh, the last thing that a business owner wants to do is increase prices. They all, it's always the last thing that they're going to do. So they end up absorb, absorbing, absorbing, or making cuts somewhere. The reality is that when the federal government devised the carbon tax, and with the federal backstop being implemented in a few other provinces, uh, and now coming to Newfoundland and Labrador, well, since the backstop has been in place, and even originally and throughout, the federal government has promised to return some of that money, just like it's doing for consumers, to businesses. And it hasn't. It's sitting on close to $3 billion that have been accumulated for uh, in the provinces where the backstop was uh, since the beginning of this. Now, it's coming to Newfoundland and Labrador on July 1st. So our ask right now is, please fix the backstop so that what you said you would provide, just like you did for households and individuals, would be available to businesses, and it hasn't yet. Essentially, the money is flying over our heads with rebate checks, uh, but what was promised to business hasn't occurred uh, after uh, it being part of the design. So at this point, we're asking for government to make it right. We, of course, as the Newfoundland and government, Government, their support in and are asked the federal government to fix it. Uh, at this point, no news.
1: And in further to that, the implication of the clean fuel regulations also coming to pass on the 1st of July, which is an incremental increase. The problem there is we can't get anyone, including Minister Guibo, to tell us exactly what that dollar amount adds up to. You know, So the unknowns between the parliamentary budget officer, the provincial government, Minister Guibo, is so gray and confusing that no wonder people are asking for a pause or a delay or a scrap in full. I appreciate the time this morning, Louis Philippe.
8: Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. That's Louis-Philippe Gauthier. He's the VP Atlantic of the CFIB. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the, about the Municipal Assessment Agency and then whatever you want to talk about, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Sean, you're on the air. How are
9: you doing today, buddy? Okay. How about you? Not too bad. Uh, first of all, I just want to throw out bouquets to the ER nurses and ER doctors over there, the triage nurses, the ones that assess you before they take you into the back and and, and try to help you or whatever. Mm-hmm. A thousand a thousand bouquets. But to the to the government who's running the hospital over there, like Betty, I've never I've never been in any type of war zone or anything like that. But if 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 you were to make a movie about you know a a, a hospital in the middle of a war zone go to the health science. It's absolutely horrendous over there.
1: Last time I was there, it was overcrowded, chaotic. There was people lying on the floor. There was gurneys in the hallways. It was really a sad scene. And, I mean, we've experienced that personally, like, with, even with my own father, and that was years ago. So it is really something else. I mean, the emergency room with the health sciences, they'll tell you they were operating at double capacity for a good stretch of last year. So it's,
9: it's quite well, my my uh, my wife's over there now. She's been in the back in the emergency. They they gotta keep her there because they can't get a bed upstairs. And there's uh, the nurse told me last night. There's I think she said there's eighty there's eighty patients admitted that are still down in the emergency room waiting to get a bed upstairs. Eight zero petty. And these people are like the nurses are ran after feet over there. Like. I don't even I don't even understand how 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 they're keeping sane over there. To be honest with you, uh, like last night for instance, I was over there. It was it was kind of late. The hospital was on on wheels, as we say. It was just in, in, in Sandy over there. And the nurse was telling me about all these people that are you know, waiting to go upstairs and me. And normally, when you go to the ER, obviously you're sick, so you know you need more. You need more attention. Like, they're tending to you all the time. I don't even know how they're keeping up. I mean, when you go upstairs, you're usually on the demand and you're usually ready to go home, hopefully. You know what I mean? Possibly, yeah. Plus, it's time for the minister to get on your show and to explain to the Newfoundlanders, Labradorians, what the hell is going on. And why. I know their plan is... You know, they're going to build a new hospital, and they're going to do this, and they're renovating that. Okay, to me, that's all political. You're talking all political. Now, come on and give us some real answers. Come on and tell us some real answers and give us the real story of what's going on here. Why is there only—why is one nurse, when when there's a break over there at 1 o'clock in the morning, and the nurse deserves a break, she's just probably running 8 or 10 hours without having a, a glass of water, and one nurse has to ten to 20 patients to keep to keep to try to keep everybody pain down and try to keep everybody comfortable for for that 5 or 10 minutes that other that other four nurses got to take a little break. So I want the minister or big shot premier to come out here. You know, if the premier want to do us Newfoundlanders a favor, I think he should step down as premier and go back and work over to the hospital because we we need doctors. That's...
1: The, look everybody Everybody wants answers the, and look we've gone down this path many many times with Minister Hagee Minister Osborne I don't even know if there's a fundamental answer available I mean look for instance if there are people who are at home waiting for a surgery they can't get in because there isn't a bed up upon their need for recovery if there's 80 people down in gurneys somewhere in and around the emergency department because there isn't a bed available upstairs what causes that you know for yeah. instance there's at least, and probably well in excess now, have a couple of hundred beds in long-term care that are vacant. Why? They don't have the nurses. They don't have the staff to allow people to move from the hospital to a long-term care facility where they belong. So I'm going to guess that between the number of nurse vacancies, the number of vacant uh, long-term care beds, surgical backlog, emergency rooms cl- clogged up, f- lack of family doctors, I think there's probably five or six contributing factors, which makes it... Extremely difficult to try to figure out, and I'm not talking about for the minister, I'm talking about for me and for you and for others yeah. who are living the, the exact same thing,
9: right? And, Penny, like, okay, like you just said, why did this happen? Why can't we retain doctors? Why can't we get more nurses? Why, why, what is the reason? Come out and tell us the real reason. I guarantee you. Uh, the premiers hearing other doctors saying, "I'm not working over there." Are you like you know what I mean? Like the conversation is def—you're definitely having conversations with these co- colleagues. I'm not going over there and working in this this chaos. Like, why? Tell us why. Don't come out with your political BS. I'm, we're sick of hearing it. We, we're done with it. Like, and I've talked to you before, Patty. My wife also has has MS. Like, we, we can't even get a hold of neurologists. We're still going through that. We're still going through it eight, nine months, and and someone who's unwell to wait that long to get in to see your specialist. I'm not blaming it on the doctors. This is got nothing to do with the doctors. They're overran, overran. Yeah, no
1: argument it's here. But on top of that, terrible. on top of that, I just can't it's seemingly impossible for someone to try to help paint a clear picture for me. For instance, number of doctors. There's actually more doctors living and working in this province than ever before in our history. So, are they all seeing patients? Or is it some of the pure research? Some of it with a half a patient roster? Uh, Are we just older and sicker? Like, what is going on? Help me understand why. If the fact is, and I've confirmed the fact that there's more doctors here than ever before, but so many people are waiting forever and a day to see a specialist. Don't have a family doctor, so it's just so unbelievably difficult to figure out exactly what's going on. You know, I'm going to just take a guess at this, Sean. I don't think there's anybody in government that would be able to give you a two- or three-minute answer to paint a clear picture as to why things are the way they are, maybe because it's complicated, possibly because they don't understand it, and then consequently might not even have an answer to a question that is on the tip of the tongue of every single person in the province, especially those who are dealing with a medical issue.
9: Or Perry, you know something like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really know the population numbers here in Newfoundland. I haven't seen them in a while. Like, if the population grow, Obviously, we're we're bringing in we're bringing in more foreigners and we're bringing in people from the Ukraine and everything else. And everybody's welcome here, obviously, in my opinion. Fine and come on in. But are are we prepared for this? Are, are, and obviously. Maybe we're not. Are we prepared to have an extra 10,000 people, 100,000 people? Because obviously, these people are coming here. They're, they're eventually going to get sick themselves. You know what I mean? So I do.
1: Uh, population growth last year in the province about 2%. Population stands in and around 525,000 people. Short answer to your question is no, we're not fully prepared. Whether it be with health care or housing, the two most immediate needs, not only in this province but across the country. So we need to pump the brakes a little bit to try to catch up here. because And that's not anti-immigrant. That's pro reality. If right. we do indeed have a housing crunch and a healthcare issue, unless you are prepared on the receiving end, we're not doing anyone any favors, right? No, so I get right. people are running for their lives and all this, and that's absolutely true. And there's lots of upside to immigration, but currently across the country, holding off just a bit to get ourselves figured out. Like on housing, we need to build more houses in the next 10 years than we built in the last 50 years. We haven't built uh, federally funded rental units in the last 30 years. Where do we find ourselves? In a crisis. I mean, predictably so. Sean, last word to you before I wish you and your wife well before I have to go to the news.
9: Okay, Patty. Uh Well, it's just like uh, like Bill and the nurse last night was saying they're going to double the capacity of the beds over in the emergency. But like she was saying, I mean, it's kind of a waste of time if you don't have the staff, obviously, yes. right? I mean, it's common sense. That that, that you don't need to be... Uh, you don't need to be any sort of scientist or any sort of educator to figure that out. I mean, that's common sense. You can't put 100 beds in and expect five nurses to run them. No. way, anyway, you can build all the hospitals you want, but, you know, build it, but they're not going to call them if the staff is not there. It's as simple as that. But thanks for
0: taking my call, Paddy, and all the best to you also.
1: The very same to you, Sean. Take care. Say hello to your wife for me.
0: Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.
1: All just right, take a break for the news. Don't go away
0: saturday morning join us for the irish newfoundland show send your request to irish nl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com
1: welcome back to the show let's go to line one brent you're on the air good morning patty how are you today doing okay thanks how about you
10: well feeling blessed clothes dressed and warm
1: anyway <laughs> that's a good thing what's well, on your mind
10: I uh, call in I uh, hear's a, a lot of conversation about the m assessment again, yep. well, I just figured I'd call in now. I'm not griping with any of mine. I looked on my papers, so I get a few come and i I think that they're all uh, about what I think I could sell the property for and uh I think that I mean one thing well, I hear people saying, oh my it went up, say forty thousand, and it's because all of the properties are gone up then that uh, if all the properties in the town have gone up and your property tax has gone up, shouldn't some shouldn't people also look at their council and wonder where the spending is and uh, why all the pro- the properties went up? I mean all the taxable properties put together, figured out how much the municipality needs to operate. So if all the properties go up, that should drive the mill rate down, right? Well,
1: I I, I guess I, I mean
10: hear people, I just don't hear people saying about what they can St. Peter Council, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, well, the councils are obliged by law to offer a balanced budget. But are you saying that the municipal assessment agency it works with councils to figure out what they need for revenue? Because the only uh, city, the only community that does their own assessments is the city of St. John's. My understanding is everyone else gets theirs done by the municipal assessment agency. So are you saying they're in cahoots or what exactly is the point? Sorry?
10: No. What, what, no, what I was saying is the council decides how much it needs to operate. Right. AND THEN IT TAKES HOW MUCH TAXABLE PROPERTY IS IN in THE TOWN, AND THAT'S HOW great THEN THEY divide THAT UP AND FIGURES OUT HOW MUCH EACH PROPERTY NEEDS TO PAY TO GET TO, to THEIR OPERATING COST, RIGHT?
1: BUT OF COURSE THEY DON'T NEED THE ASSESSMENT TO uh, BE MANIPULATED IN ANY FORM BECAUSE THEY HAVE THE ULTIMATE TOOL, WHICH IS THE MILL RATE. IF SO, IF THEY SAY, WELL, WE NEED TO that's INCREASE I'm- REVENUES, <laughs> I'M SORRY, GO AHEAD.
10: Oh, no, but that's what I'm saying, Patty, is uh, if if all the properties in the town went up, then you're, then by rights, if your council is using the same amount to operate, then you should pay the same amount of property tax, right? Ultimately, should, yes. Ultimately, right. But it don't seem like that's the thing. But if the municipal assessment says that your property's up and your neighbor's property's up and your neighbor's property's up, and then the, your property tax goes way up, then there should be more money in the council, you know what I mean? Yes. Well, that's just, it's just, it's just my opinion, but uh, I'm deciding municipal assessment. I think that they got their hands full because for one thing, properties change far too often. So if I do my siding on my house, or I do my, my kitchen up, I can rent that house to a bad tenant and that kitchen can be worthless within two or three years or one year. You know what I mean, so like to to think that that there's enough people working at the municipal assessment to be keeping in, say you go up Mary'stown or I'm calling from Clarenville say you you go what there's there's no chance that there's enough people funded, there's enough people being paid to keep track, and if I put new siding on my house. I could have a dog or I could rent somebody with a dog who could tear it off. and I mean it's just worthless within no time as for the twenty year old siding to a potential buyer could be could be just as good, you know what I mean? It could be worth more than, than siding that was just done.
1: Do you yes, the, what I think so. And then add to it, someone asked me if uh, the assessment agency has access to municipal databases to talk about how many people drew permits for some sort of home improvements. But of course, that means that everyone who does home improvement actually gets a permit, which we know is not true. So I don't know how accurate. Yeah, well, that, that, that's not that's not the case. I mean, if uh, what's not the case? They,
10: they, 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 no, everybody that that does it that does it is not getting a permit. I didn't but say that. No, no, and I, and I understand that, Patty. I'm not disagreeing with you, but they come around when you get a permit, and they come around when the house is sold. Other than that, they're supposed to come around every 10 to 15-odd years just to do a quality check, right? But, it, but I mean, it, it isn't getting done, and I just I just think that it'd be a lot simpler system if they could just have a 4 tear system or 6 tear system, where, like, if your house is 30 or 40 years old, then... Like me and my neighbor and three or four people on my street, if all of our houses are 40 years old, why are we paying different amounts? You know what I mean? For, for one thing, if I do my house up within five years, it could be dragged right back down again or it could be looked after and stay up, right? But I just think that instead of daunting these people with this very hard task of trying to figure out what every property is worth, Cause they're not getting into houses like, like the reality of it is yes they may be supposed to be getting in the houses but I, I own a few properties municipal assessment don't be in the house nope. so they, they really they really don't know but if all one subdivision is 30 or 40 years old you, like you just to, to make it a level playing field that whole subdivision is tier two or three or you could have six tens or whatever right just say in St. John's. I'm not real familiar with the area, but you go out around Austin Street, say those duplexes. I don't know how old they are. Maybe 20, 30 years old. Already, Patty, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I mean, they could be on a level. You know what I mean? And then a, a new subdivision, say in Claremont, you go down around High Birchy. It could be everybody down there. Like I like that's another part that that I've always I've always questioned. Is why do why is everybody saying, paying so far different anyway when in, in, in all fairness, we're accepting the same service basically from the town and the municipality, right?
1: Well, that's the trick regarding property tax in full, isn't it? Is that we'll all pay varying amounts to get the exact same service. Uh, Brent, I'm off to the break. I appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. All right, Patty. Have a good day. You too, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, before we get to the break, let's go to line number three. Ray you're on the air.
11: Hi, Patty. How are you this morning?
1: Great today. Uh, great today. Thank you. How about you?
11: Uh, I, well, I'm a bit per- perplexed. I found this giant water bug that flew into my sighting last week, and I've been holding on to it, trying to get it a hold of somebody to see if they're going to come get it. I didn't know if it was an invasive species or anything, so I figured I just want to let it go back into like the environment. Uh, I've never seen one before, and uh, it's kind of weird. It was almost like a small bird. <laughs> One of the times back the other night, when I collected, I have it in peanut butter jar now and, and eating it. To, uh, it's been living off of a petal tea bag <laughs> and uh, and some cherries I've been with it. So uh, yeah, but I, I've contacted or I try to contact the fluvarium and see if anybody can collect to know who's gotten back to me. So I didn't know who to contact. <laughs> so it's, it's it's strange perplexing.
1: Yeah, I look, so, It's funny that you called. Someone last week sent me a, a picture from their phone of an absolutely massive giant water bug. And they're right here in the city. So I didn't think that they were anywhere except for the most southern parts of the country. So I don't know, man, what's going on here. But I've seen a lot of things, whether it be the prevalence of worms out around, which is not unheard of. But the kinds of bugs, number of spiders in people's houses, giant water bugs, something's going on
11: yeah i like i don't know if they're coming in out um, on what cargo or anything like that you know possibly so, yeah yeah so i I'd like i don't know who to contact if you want to take
1: it or, or. oh maybe the seminar nature park or the department of wildlife or memorial university those three might be decent options okay very good let, me know, let me know if anyone gives you some interesting information
7: Okay. Thank you, Patty. Thank
1: you, Rajan. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, Brent Payton's out in Gander to talk about an upcoming swap meet. Oral wants to talk about the carbon tax, and then plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Brent Payton. You're on the air.
12: Hello. Uh, I'm calling about the uh, swap meet is in Gander and at the Elks Club, the Elks uh, on 3 Codwell Street, Gander. Okay. And we're looking for... uh, anybody that wants to sell some parts some vendors anybody that wants to sell any parts to uh, call and book a table and there's no charge at all by donation and there's no admission at the door by donation only and the money's for going to the children's fund okay just quickly parts
1: okay motorcycle parts that's what i was going to ask parts for what yeah
12: Yeah, any kind of like motorcycle parts, uh, motorcycle builders, or anybody that has any interest in uh, motorcycle swap meets. Like in Alberta, they have uh, Red Deer every year. They have a big swap meet, and anybody that's interested in now this is the Motorcycle uh, Gander's Motorcycle Weekend coming up this Saturday, and there's going to be a lot of uh, motorcycles here. Several events, motorcycle events going on in Gander this weekend. So like anybody that's coming out to Gander for the weekend, if they got some parts that they want to sell, they, they're most welcome to a table it's free of charge, as a donation. If you want to make a donation, and uh, if you don't want to, you don't have to at the Elks Club because we're not about profit. We're about uh, helping the community. And this event is for helping the children.
1: What children's fund are you talking about, Brent?
12: Uh, the Elks Club, we... Uh, we do uh, money. We raise money for the children, children's foundation in uh, children around Gander. All anything for uh, anything for the children. Uh, we got all kinds of. Uh, now I don't know all the specifics on it. I'm just a local member. I'm not the, on the administration. But that's what the Elks is about. Uh, it's about uh, charity work and helping the community. And uh, I'd also like to say, uh, if I could put it into people's ear around Newfoundland, uh, the motorcycles that are coming to Gander this weekend is a great influx to the uh, economic development of the community, which helps the hotels, the restaurants. It's a big uh, financial boost. So it was an important weekend this weekend, and I thank you for the time. Happy
1: to do it. It was a big motorcycle event here in the city over the weekend, too, the Motorcycle Ride for Dad, Prostate Awareness Campaign. So you say there's other events beyond the motorcycle swap. So what else is happening?
12: Uh, Well, I don't want to speak for anybody else's committee. There's there's another club in town. I think they have an event, and there's a couple of dances, and the Ride for Sight is this weekend, and I think they have a, a dance so it's kind of just kind of a, a fun weekend. It's a, a good weekend, and it's probably bring a million dollars into the uh, economic being of the community, which is a great thing.
1: Between that and helping the kids and getting together and uh, getting some parts or selling some parts, sounds like it should be all right, Brent. So good luck with yes. it, and thanks for the time. Um,
12: and thank you for letting me put in a, to reach St. John's. Thank you very much.
1: My pleasure. Take good care. Okay. Good luck. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. There we go. Motorcycle like swap. Let's go to line number four. Oral, you're on the air.
7: Hi, Fatty. How are you?
1: Okay. Thank you. How are you doing?
7: I'm oh, not too bad, Fatty. I got a couple of topics, Fatty. Okay. Uh, now, when they sent out that COVID money to people, right? You know the COVID money.
1: Well, it depends. There was lots of different uh, pots of money. So, like the SERB. Yeah. Okay.
7: Now, do you do we have to pay that back?
1: No, you have right. to pay taxes on it, though.
7: Oh, you just got to pay taxes on it. Yep. Okay, I have another one for you. What's so. all this about July first? Everybody, tell me something about July first, Eddie.
1: Uh, a couple of things happen on July first. We go on to the federal carbon tax uh, arrangement or structure, and then there's also a clean fuel regulations coming to being and to be implemented on the first of July. So those two, for starters. Which, but that guy, needs to do with low income people, Patty? Got to do with everybody, uh, is the reality. So if you buy gasoline, right now carbon tax on gas is eleven cents, it goes to fourteen on the first. Oh, okay.
7: Yep. Yeah. And uh, and the GST is just around the corner from that, right? Can they take your GST patty on you if you them COVID money patty? Yeah. They take
1: the whole GST on you? They can. Oh. Uh, yeah, so okay, the GST patty had a Yeah, have a wonderful day, buddy. You too, all the best, Oral. Thank you. You're welcome, bye-bye. So yeah, so July is the carbon tax goes from 11 to 14 cents per liter, and then there's the clean fuel regulations. We don't have a number because no one can give us one, but that's an incremental issue that begins on the 1st of July, goes to 2030. Then the grocery rebate, the increase in the GST, the one-time bump comes on the 5th of July. But inside that carbon tax world, for the first time, obviously, when we were paying carbon tax in this province, the money went to government coffers. Now, on the federal structure or scheme, whatever people want to call it, we do indeed qualify for quarterly rebates from the federal government, and on parts of Ontario, they haven't been flowing, so still some questions on that front, but before we get to the news, let's get an update about a transportation issue out of the Grace Sparks house. I'll speak with the executive director, Lisa Slaney. Good morning, Lisa. You're on the air. (laughs) Would we try to get Lisa back? I don't know what happened there. I clicked her on, and the beep came up. So of course inside the grace sparks house uh, transportation concern maybe that's her calling back right away well brent's chiming in on the giant water bugs they've had giant water bugs in central for many years certainly 30 years ago when i was a teen i haven't seen a lot of them around especially on the avalon peninsula uh, i haven't seen them on my property but a guy who lives not too far from me sent me it was a lady actually sent me a picture of one on their property it was massive it looked like it was for scale maybe four or five inches long pretty big bug now let's see if we can get lisa slaney on too lisa you're on the air
13: good morning patty how are you
1: excellent thanks for asking how about you
13: i'm doing great thank okay. you Okay. patty um, we spoke a few months ago with regards to the rising costs of uh, transportation for our shelter in marystown with regards to the canning bridge being closed yeah that's right so, yeah so um I just wanted to uh, touch base, and uh, I guess give the the public some information in terms of some um, happenings that uh, have evolved over the past few months. So, um, we were actually contacted by uh, the Basil Dobbin Family Foundation a few months ago with regards to any upcoming projects we had and um so i sent along some information with regards to you know some of the challenges and things that we were experiencing and i'm very very happy Uh, to tell uh, the listening public that the uh, Basil Dobbin Foundation donated us uh, almost $65,000 for the purchase of a new van for our shelter. So that was actually delivered to us on Friday. So I just wanted to uh, send out a heartfelt thank you uh, to the uh, Foundation and uh, just to let the public know that, uh, you know, we're going to be able to... uh, have a, a better future, I guess, in terms of funding and, and our transportation issues as we move forward, waiting for the bridge to be repaired.
1: Excellent news. Uh, I know some of the people behind that, so that's great that they were as generous as the the $265,000. So this money, are you going to be able to purchase a shuttle van, or are you just going to be able to cover taxi costs, or how are you going to spend it?
13: No, actually, we purchased a uh, van okay. on Friday. And the, the van was actually delivered to us on Friday, so we expect to uh, you know have everything in order uh, this week to start uh, doing our own shuttling.
1: Good stuff, because, I mean, that's a long-term solution, right, as opposed to just trying to chip away at taxi bills or whatever the case may be or helping people with gas. So I'm pleased to hear that that's been settled. So good on everybody at the Basil Dobbin Foundation. Uh, Just very quickly, before we run out of time, just describe what you're doing at Grace Park's house. I know what you're doing with your 10-bed emergency shelter, but probably not everybody does.
13: Yeah. So, Patty, um, we're an emergency shelter for women and children uh, who are experiencing violence. We also um, operate a supportive housing unit uh, for women who leave the shelter. And, um, you know, we we provide support with regards to, um, of course, uh, housing, uh, emergency shelter, um, you know, legal um, uh, information, legal appointments, um you know mental health addictions all those things and helping women start over with regards to you know furniture and funding and and uh different things like that anything you know that a woman and her children may need to uh you know to start living a life uh, free of violence
1: we've heard stories like even in and around town with emergency shelters and a surge in the numbers of people needing and over capacity what have you how about a great sparks
13: it is actually, um, we have seen in the past few months. Um, I mean, it's just, uh, our, our numbers have been, you know, uh, drastically increased compared to what we would normally, you know, normally see, uh, around this time of year. But, um, you know, again, I mean, we're just happy that we're able to uh, provide that service and work with our partners across the province to ensure that uh, women and children, you know, um, are provided with a safe environment and, and the services and supports that they need to move forward.
1: I appreciate the update and the good work that you and your team are doing at the Grace Sparks House. And once again, bravo to the folks at the Basil Dobbin Foundation. That goes a long way to dealing with a very real issue for you and certainly many people in Marystown with the community basically divided you. Geographically speaking, with the Canning Bridge being closed. I appreciate the update, Lisa.
13: Thank you, Patty, so much. And thanks again to the uh, Basil Family Foundation.
1: Absolutely right. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. There we go. That's good news. All right, so we did have a call from Murray talking about post-Fiona nine months later and some of the issues regarding funding flowing. And also now, all of a sudden... Who knows who's doing it or for what reason? Some 50 or 60 homes that are slated to be torn down well above sea level. Who's responsible for that? Does anybody know? Who's paying for that? Does anybody know? And also lots of issues inside the envelope of industry, energy, and technology. We'll speak with the member for the region of Berger Lapoil And, of course, the minister responsible with those aforementioned sectors of the economy. Don't go away.
0: Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to Andrew
1: Parsons. He's the uh, member for Berger LaPoil. He's also the Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology and joins us on one Minister Parsons. You're on the air.
14: Good morning, Patty. How are you?
1: Okay, thank you. How about you?
14: This is it. It's Monday, last week's school.
1: Yep, yeah, absolutely. 12.30 Thursday, as my wife was quick to remind me this morning. <laughs> so, as the member regarding your constituents in Virgil La Poyle, so, uh, Murray called this morning, talked about the timeliness of money flowing, but also that it seems to be hyper-focused on Port of Basque versus some other communities that were obviously impacted by post-tropical storm. Fiona, specifically, though, an additional 50 or 60 homes, says Murray, that are slated to be torn down, that are way above sea level, and he doesn't see the need for that to happen. Do you know about it? If so, what can you tell us about it?
14: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, <laughs> uh, the first thing I'm going to say is, look, there's very little I can do to deal with, uh, you know, certain opinions and perspectives on it. Believe me, if I've seen anything over the last 9 months, there's been plenty of perspectives and opinions. What I can say is that the staff and the team that have been working on it, the the, the reality is that the the these total number of uh, houses lost and the the vast majority of damage was in the Basque area, but for anybody to say that any area is going to be left out or treated differently are not the same. Absolutely not the case. There's certainly, we got uh, some houses lost in Burnt Islands, uh, Burgio, Marguerite, that's all being worked on. In fact, there's actually a meeting being held with the Town Council of Burnt Islands today and the the Fiona team will call it to work on next steps. So the first round of a hundred; those were houses that were lost, like actually you know washed away, not safe to reside in. That's been dealt with. So every one of those people has been dealt with. In the vast majority of cases, settlements have been paid. In some cases, they've been delayed because, <clears throat> sorry, I apologize. Uh, people have been taking care, you know getting legal advice, but there's no one there that should not be settled. The next part is this so-called vulnerable zone, and what it is in some cases these houses are uh, still you know habitable. But they're in areas that are extremely compromised due to land erosion, storm damage. So that was finally, we've been working on that for some time. And I can tell you, people have been certainly after me for months now saying, where are we going with this? These people, this list of houses was notified just late Last week, so now it's a matter of working through this process with them and figuring out, you know, uh, you know, the value of the house, the how that adjustment's going to work, the payout, where do they go next, things like that. This is also going to happen in these other communities, but in this case, just the sheer size of it, they dealt with that area first.
1: So, is this a government backstopped operation? Because we were told initially the 30 million dollars would be for folks who were suffered storm surge damage which was not covered by insurance but others who didn't have insurance for a variety of other factors they'd be so called left on their own or so has something so changed
14: this is right now this is we'll say backed by the provincial government but let's keep in on half the issue here is that we are the i guess the we're taking we're the first resort That people go to. Uh, We've also been dealing with the federal uh, government. We've been dealing with their DFAA program. We're dealing with the Red Cross communities, you name it. But the problem is that sometimes trying to get solutions from those problems takes too long. We've been forced to do our own thing just to get people taken care of. So, Where does the financial responsibility end when it's all said and done? I can't say that that decision's been made. Like, I know the Red Cross and the feds have committed a significant sum of money. I think the feds was around 30, then there was whatever was raised, there's what we as a province have put in, and then, you know, whatever comes after. But the problem is people don't care who's paying for it. People want their issue dealt with, which is why we as a province have been forced to step up and to take care of these issues now. And, again, we'll work it all through the process after, we'll say.
1: Okay, I do want to move on to some uh, uh, issues inside your portfolio. This one for me, I don't know if I roll my eyes at it or just shrug my shoulders, but it's the whole Atlantic loop. In the federal budget, we were not mentioned because we're not part of the Maritimes, and we're told, innocent mistake. You know, and obviously we'd have to be part because some half of the power would come from Labrador, but the reality is we don't really have any excess power. You know, you look no further than the government's uh, decision to invest some $522 million at beta spare for an eighth-generating unit, and Musgrave Falls is pretty well settled regarding uh, Nova Scotia and, First Royal and the 1st and refusal and the rest of it. So the question being asked is, are we at the table as this Atlantic Loop seems to be proceeding with some $4.5 billion coming from the Feds against a $6.8 billion uh, price tag. So are we involved? Are we at the table?
14: Absolutely. I mean, look, I don't get caught up in what they call Atlantic Loop, Atlantic Backbone, Atlantic Link. I haven't gotten caught up in any of that. The reality is a lot of this is based around the maritime provinces needs to decarbonize. That's not an issue that we have, but we are going to be a part of a solution when it comes to, you know, energy capacity, transmission generation, we are going to be a part of any solution. So right now, a lot of this is geared on helping these provinces who are, you know, reliant on coal and other sources try to figure out some of that. But again, They're going to need us at some point, whether the power comes across the link, which we're already doing, whether we talk about the the conversations we're going to have with Quebec, and then further on. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was only a few weeks we were down meeting with the governor of Massachusetts. Our power is going to end up farther beyond than Quebec. Now, there's a lot of things that need to be worked out to enable that to happen. But, look, we're not not—we're we're part of every conversation. There is no conversation happening that we aren't a part of because there's no solution that you can have without us being a part of it. Does not mean every decision has been made? Hell no. Not even close. I mean, we've got a, a plethora of options when it comes to generation, whether it be Bay of Spares, you mentioned, Upgrades to Churchill, the aforementioned Gaul, which, you know, again, there's been no real conversation, we'll say, because that has a huge number. First of all, we need to work with our indigenous partners on that. Then there's other smaller-scale things. So we're blessed with a number of hydro op- uh, you know, options. It's about figuring out, you know, which ones, when do you do it, what is the cost, and maybe even what's the order in which we do that, and then figuring out all the other things that come along with it, along with the, the 2041 conversation.
1: So is it fair to say, based on what you just said, that unless we add capacity, whether it be at – Gull or offshore wind or what have you because unless that happens we don't even have power to contribute to the atlantic loop or whatever it's called
14: yeah like, uh, what i will say to you is that there's going to be a need uh... not just here but in every province we need to increase generation we and we know that as well we're at the point now where we're going to have a demand within newfoundland and labrador just when you talk about mining operations in labrador and their demand to, uh, you know, when we talk about green steel, and that's that's going to be a, an increased reliance on power. Uh, all positive stories, but it's about figuring out how does that work. Then you look at Quebec. Quebec, as we know, has said themselves that they're in the, you know, they had to figure out what their power future looks like. I think it includes us, but there's, you know, bigger conversations that have to happen. So the the good thing is we're not handcuffed in the sense that some people don't have these options. We have options. But we're going to have to figure them out because we are going to need to increase capacity.
1: Hydro Quebec, fifteen percent of the power they distribute domestically and otherwise comes from the Upper Churchill. So obviously they've got things they have to address. But like if you point to Labrador mining and what have you, that's a domestic market. So what role would the Atlantic Circuit or Loop or additional transmission even mean on that front? Because that doesn't really scream we need to be involved with anybody, including helping Nova Scotia further.
14: No, I mean the, the Labrador conversation is just an opportunity we have there. When you have some of our biggest mining operators who all talk about the need, like there is a global demand for their product, but it needs to be green. That's what shareholders and and customers want. So we need to work with them to figure that out. That does not have anything to do with Nova Scotia and beyond. But again, you know, we're looking at. If anything, we're blessed with a number of opportunities. How do they all fit together? How do we get the best value? for the resources we have here. That's the driving concern for me. I can't tell you exactly how it's all going to work. There's a hell of a lot smarter people than me that are working on this. Uh, But I would rather have these opportunities slash challenges than elsewhere where they, they are trying to figure out where this power is going to come from because they need to make changes by 2030. So this to me I would think this is a more difficult conversation in the Maritimes than it is here. Because we just had to figure, out what do we develop first? They don't have that same option.
1: I'd like to get through a couple of quick ones before I run out of time. Will it be before the end of the month where there's an announcement on the companies moving to the next stages of wind, hydrogen, uh, ammonia?
14: We will definitely have the first phase determined by then. But right now, I will say there's some slippage. So for the last month, when I talked to, whether it's conferences or advocates or companies, I've been saying the same message. I think it's a July uh, announcement now. Uh, just due to the fact that we're dealing with so many players, whether it's a fairness advisor, financial people, the legal, you name it, anytime there's an extra day getting, say, a legal opinion back, that increase, that adds a day onto our end. So we're looking at, i would, I think it's safe to say it's going to be July before the final announcements are made.
1: Last one. I don't know where this came from. I suppose you were asked the question about equity stake in offshore production fields. We have a stake in three that are operating today. Still not, not off the table to have a 10% or to buy a 10% equity stake and beta in order, which we know has been shelled for up to three years. But inside the Green Report, which your government told us would be a real blueprint for how we move forward economically speaking here, and that group said, you know, divest oil equity positions. Then inside of Rothschild, which I can only imagine they said the same thing, given the fact that they are looking at preparing the equity assets for market, you say unequivocally there's no document that says we are going to do that. But if recommended by Rothschild or recommended by Green, and knowing where we are financially and physically speaking, if they recommend it to be so and we put so much stock in it, why aren't we doing it?
14: Well, it's one of those things that it's it's not a simple equation. So I just I'll use the example that the you know, whenever you're buying or selling anything, you you want to get best value. And so if we did it as quickly as some people ask, I don't think we would have got best value. When this was first I guess looked at, we're talking August of 20, and if we had taken these decisions then, we would be in a a very difficult, different spot because the whole industry had gone sideways right now. So it's not a case of, uh, you know, whether we will or we won't. We'll make that decision. Yes, we're taking advice from everybody. But at the end of the day, I keep saying, look, we were elected to make decisions. So I appreciate expert advice. Certainly, we take that in consideration. But there's a lot of work behind the scenes that you have to do to ensure it's it's not just the same as, you know, selling your, your car to somebody else. There's a lot of Moving parts to this, we have to rely on certainly a lot of experts. Again, we want to know what do we have, what is it worth, and when is the best time, if you decide to let it go, what is the best time to do that? So, you know, again, I'm not worried about today. I'm worried about if you do it today, what does it look like 10 years down the road? And people say, well, you should have got rid rid of it, you shouldn't have got rid of it. We just want to make the best decision we can based on expert advice, but knowing that it comes back on us when it's all said and done.
1: That would be about divesting, but of course, the same thing, but different about buying another equity stake, 10% and paid Nord. So if the recommendation has been to divest, then why would he be even considering purchasing another equity stake?
14: And I can't tell you why that came up. I think it must have been an A tip that went out and said, look, you know, uh, we have a 10% option. That is what it is. We have a 10% possibility of a stake that has value. We have not made any decision whether to take it or to not take it, but we're not going to give away anything that has value because it belongs to the province. So it's one of those things where if you have something that has a value, it's about identifying what is that value and when's the best time to exercise it. We're certainly not going to give it away, but that also doesn't mean that we're just going to go ahead and, and purchase it either.
1: Uh, very quickly, uh, in the next 10 years, does Gull Island get developed?
14: Man, you're asking me a tough one there today that uh, certainly I don't have control of. Uh, I can't give you a yes or no on that. All I will say is this. I think it's an extremely complicated proposition, no matter how much value and opportunity there because it doesn't involve just a provincial government. And we're still dealing with the repercussions from the last major hydro development, which clouds, believe me, so many policy decisions that we make. So I can't give you yes or no. I mean, anything that happens is gonna require extensive indigenous consultation and work. We're gonna have to look at, is it a private lender? Is there another province that partners? Does the province wanna take it on its own? Uh, and things change a lot in short periods of time. I know that's not yes or no, but that's uh, that's a hard one to give you that answer on.
1: Yeah, I wasn't really expecting yes or no, <laughs> but of course, it, you know, if that's part of the Atlantic Loop, then maybe there's Massachusetts, maybe there's Maine, well, maybe there's New York State. I don't know, but
14: there's, it's a huge asset. It has huge value. But how do you get to the point of development, keeping all these different things in mind? Uh, like I say, I would rather have that challenge than not having it at all. Uh, but there's going to be multiple, I think, partners that are part of that discussion.
1: Appreciate the time this morning. Thank you.
14: All the best. Take care.
1: Bye-bye. Sandra Parsons, the Minister of Industry, Energy, Technology. Just take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Final word this morning goes to line number three. Good morning, Mark. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going? Great today. Thank you. How are you doing?
15: Pretty good. Uh, interest, interesting stuff there from uh, Minister
11: Parsons.
15: Um, and, uh, you know, I, I I just thought during... Your interview with him, like, you know, sometimes we're just haunted by the things in our past that are, that were mistakes, um, whether that be, you know, hydro dams or, or agreements or cucumbers or whatever.
1: 100%. Uh, <laughs> I think we, uh, I think that
15: we don't do a great job at learning from our mistakes and moving forward um, with, you know, with, with, uh, with advice, with, with, uh, with that new knowledge after mistakes. And I think mistakes can be one of those, one of those blessed things in life where, where we, uh, we can learn. But uh, anyways, that's not what I'm, why I'm calling today, Patty. I'm just calling because of the, I just see in the news now that uh, the city is going to discuss putting a fence up around the stage on George street um, at today's meeting. Um, and, uh, I was down there last night. Actually, I was down at the Black Sheep, uh, for the open mic with Joe Tucker. It was lots of fun, but I did see at first four people on the stage and then, uh, eventually, uh, just one was sleeping down there and, uh, it's troubling. So I'm really hoping, and I, I spoke to you last week about the issues here on Livingstone, the poverty, addictions, mental health, housing. Um, the, almost immediately after, I got a call from uh, Councillor Jamie Korab, um, and, you know, we discussed some of the things that the city can do to address these underlying issues, uh, you know, the reasons why people are sleeping on the stage. Um, and I'm desperately hoping that in today's meeting that, that the city council spends as much time talking about those issues as they do about whether a stage need, whether the stage needs a fence or not.
1: Yeah, I get it. <laughs> you know, I've had people send me pictures that uh, show someone sleeping on the stage and then making reference to what the tourists see. And then you'll get the exact same picture shared by a different perspective that says what about how and why this person doesn't have somewhere to live. And then you get another email about the exact same picture about lighting and police. So I guess it's the, it's the varied opinion on the exact same photograph that I find to be fascinating.
15: I think there was, you know, I know Robin Legro called in last Friday. There was a reference earlier in your show today about that, the concept of upstream, where are these people falling in the river? Uh, you know, I've talked to many people downtown and whether the shelter system is, uh, overbooked, not available, not suitable. If there's uh, you know, an, uh, a mental health issue that it has prevented somebody from getting into the shelter or being able to return to a shelter. Um, whether whatever the problem is, we need more housing. Like we just <laughs> we need more housing, yep. and we need it now. And I think you referred earlier to like you know it's been 30 years since since we've seen housing builds uh, uh, from the federal government. Um, we've got the Rapid Housing Initiative. This is not rapid. We need this stuff to happen.
1: Yeah, and the reference 30 years was that the federal government hasn't been directly involved in building rental units in 30 years, uh, and the catch-up timelines on just housing period, we have to build as many houses in the next 10 years that, we have, that we've that we built in the last 50, which is just monumental task. I mean, almost insurmountable, but we can't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, we can't do it, and consequently everyone has to live on the, st- on the stage on George Street. Uh, you've had the last word. I'm just clicking up to 12 o'clock, Mark, but uh, let's hear what comes out of council tonight.
15: Thanks a lot, Patty. I'll be tuning in to watch what they say. And I certainly hope that um, that uh, Councillor Korob has had some new ideas and has done a bit of research.
1: Thanks for the time. Thanks, Patty. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, good show today, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.